Has your vacation started yet? No, no. It's uh, mid-December. Star Wars time. Oh, right. That's smart. You, do you get, did, I, did I hear you right on ATP? You get just Thursday off? Yep, that's how jobs work. And a job is something where you go to like an office and stuff, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and and you, you have to go there when uh, when they say you have to go there. And if you want to not go there, you have to ask permission. How do you find out when you're supposed to be there? They tell you. Okay, is that is that something they do with, uh, you get like an email or something? They usually brand it on you, like a hot piece of iron. <laughs> a small implant. <laughs> oh, huh. Implant, luxury. <laughs> We, we dreamed of getting an implant. That's right. <laughs> That's the only way that I've learned to identify a Yorkshire accent. Oh, I can't do, I can't do regional. I mean, I can, I can distinguish them, but they all blend when not. It's like being tone deaf, right? So if I hear two notes next to each other, I can tell they're different. But if I hear one note in isolation, I have no idea which one it is. Yeah. Yeah, I'm like that. I, uh, uh, I like to think that I get good at accents. Like I spent some time in New Zealand and I got to wear... I I could, you know, when I was st- you you could offend people pretty well. What? <laughs> I said like that's that's the the being able to do an accent, right? You work your way up to the point where everybody who is going to be offended can tell what you're trying to do, oh. but it's still terrible. Yeah, I don't I try not to do that accent too much cuz I'm not very good at it. Uh but I also learned whenever I do a talk somewhere, I like to ask uh lots of weird questions. And like, you know, th- stuff like, you know, the kind of thing you'd ask if you're, if you're doing some stand up at a plumber's convention, you know, like old Gus, uh, he's going to be the last one uh, detaching the pipes or whatever. As I'll ask, like, you know, nailed it. <laughs> Welcome back to the other alternate week where John is mean to me again. Well, you came up with the schedule. Uh, I don't really I don't I don't really agree with the schedule, but it's it just like it's, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. You make up the schedule and now. Now somehow I feel some pressure to be mean to you. Right now, I never had that. I never had that feeling before, but now I feel like I have to fulfill some obligation. That's fine. No, that's it's, it's your show. Uh, that, that's totally oh, fine. Oh, don't you start with that? Don't you start, start with what? what I will not. About? I will not tolerate that. Let's tolerate what? It is this your show. Is your show. Nope. 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 Um, and so I will sometimes do. Well, I try to ask enough questions until I get to something that's not lame. So there are obvious things to ask, like, you know, I'll ask behind the scenes questions. Like, you know, what are the kinds of things that most people would agree, you know, off the record? Like, what's what's everybody's second least favorite thing about working here? Like, what are the kinds of things that drive people crazy? Is it hard to park here? You know, is it, you know, uh, what are the weird things about working here? And so like when I was in New Zealand, I was like, you know, just I said to Mike, who was my co-host at this talk, you know, what are some things, give me, I know that it really riles, or I've heard it really riles people when you get... Uh, New Zealand and Australia confused. And I was like, you know, give me give me some of the high points. And, you know, a lot of it involves jokes about sheep and stuff like that. So I try to steer clear of that stuff. But yeah, the thing was the people were there were were very gracious. My problem is I get I get a little full of myself and I start to think, not that I could do an accent, but I can detect an accent and I almost always get it exactly wrong. You mean like regional accents? Well, like like within England you're distinguishing from different parts. Yes, yes. Where I, I think I mean, from watching movies and hearing interviews with bands, like if I, if you played me a bunch of people from Manchester and a bunch of people from Yorkshire and a bunch of people from like kind of, I guess, whatever, central London, like with kind of like the high flute and BBC London versus like a Cockney accent, a Liverpool, like I can kind of tell those, like you say with notes, right? If you play a first and a fifth, like you can tell, right? But you can't tell in obscurity, oh, that's a D sharp. 
Um, but no, but then I, it just falls apart. But you know, every time I hear somebody talk like that, I, I mentally say luxury and I go, oh yeah, that's probably Yorkshire. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I notice I didn't try to do the accent. Also, that would have, that would have been too much of a giveaway, but I'm not entirely sure picking up your regional accents from listening to musicians is great because I'm pretty sure drunkenness is not an accent. Hmm. I'm writing that down. That's good. Um, I, uh, suggest, I know how you love to read Wikipedia, which is never wrong. Uh, there's, there's a page on, uh, I don't think it's exactly an accent, but the, the regionalisms of like, of Yorkshire speech are super interesting. You know, there's all those things like in England, like they say university and they don't say the universe. I'm getting, I'm going past the obvious jokes about torches yep. and lorries, but, mm-hmm. but you've got, like you say, like, you know, in hospital, in university, there's those kinds of things where they leave off a definite article and uh, they do that a lot. I think they do that a lot in Yorkshire. There's all kinds of weird regionalisms. But it's funny to read that article and do the four Yorkshiremen sketch in your head while you're reading it. <laughs> <laughs> Have you ever seen the original of that? I think the only one I've ever seen is the one where they're all on stage live. Is there is there a, like a, a flying circus version of that where it was televised? Well, the version that we've probably both seen, I believe, is Monty Python Live at the Hollywood Bowl. Yeah, yeah that's and one. so it's like Palin, Cleese, Chapman, and um, the other Terry, Terry Jones. It was originally done on a show that Cleese and I think Chapman, Cleese and somebody else wrote for, and it was Cleese, Marty Feldman. Uh, it's four guys, but it's 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 still really funny. I you know obviously they I guess kind of I, to me that's the canonical version is the Monty Python one, but. Um, God, what a terrific sketch. And it's so compact. The whole sketch is like two minutes long. And it's, just, it's perfect. It's still, it's still perfect. You can still watch that sketch today and immediately grok what's happening in it. I still think the accents make it funnier for us. Oh, yeah, you've said that before. Yeah, you've mentioned that about how watching, were we talking about Monty Python? Anime or Monty Python. But yeah, it's, it's an extra bit. Because it's a humor act, it, they sound kind of funny to us. And it, that, I feel like that definitely adds to it. I, you know, obviously we're missing something too. There's a cultural part that we're missing, but I think it's more than made up for the fact that they all sound funny to us. Uh, I, absolutely. And like when I find myself, I don't do this nearly as much because I'm not in high school anymore. But when I would, when I had a better memory and uh, less self-consciousness, I could just participate in a Monty Python sketch off and just just quote them and do all the you know that should go that should go Gavnet, you know that kind of thing and you're like I don't know what accent that is but I, I know that that's an accent and it does make it funnier absolutely four Yorkshiremen eat a handful of cold gravel <laughs> <laughs> it's funny <sighs> so uh, I only have one piece of fu uh, just I you know not to needle you but just to say thank you I think don't shouldn't we acknowledge what what someone did for us? Yeah, do you realize that the ATP guys already tried to steal this for ATP yesterday? I scolded them about it, but it, by all rights, it is ours. Well, we have a we don't have a strict policy about follow out. But we have uh, a pretty strict policy. <laughs> Double decker. <laughs> I'm a fan. Uh, first of all, uh, I don't like to talk about other podcasts on podcasts because that's kind of lame. Sorry, everybody. But uh, but that was a great episode. You were totally on fire. You were very very funny. And yes, they totally stole our topic. Uh, but, uh, so last week, and you know, I, even as these words were coming out of my mouth on, on the program, I guess two weeks ago now, <laughs> anyway, whatever, uh, we talked about clothing and I even, I was, I want to mm, provisionally apologize because I did not want to make you an object of internet scorn. I didn't you mean did. to. You I did. I didn't, I know, but I didn't, I want you to did. say. You did, you specifically asked for it. I guess that was your week to be mean know, to me. I didn't know anybody. <laughs> Okay, I think you've set the schedule, buddy. 
<laughs> no, you also made the schedule. Implant luxury. Uh, that uh, I ba- we talked about clothing, and uh, I think, uh, of course, you'll disagree with me because you're 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 a prickly little person. But I think we actually had a, a fair amount of mutual assent. The main thing we disagreed on was how much less fashionable you are than me, which is a really that's a tough tough one to win. But we both talked a lot about clothing, how we feel about clothing, being comfortable, not wanting to be a combatant in the fashion wars. And I had, as a joke, because I just assumed no one was listening, said it would be funny if somebody made like sort of like a paper doll of you where people could give you a virtual makeover. You fought in the clothes wars? <laughs> oh, I, don't, I can't even pull a quote. Uh, the more, uh, it's more, all right. Just keep going. Got a more subtle Plow weapon. bravely ahead because I, I, I appreciate the quality of the, the, the craftsmanship. That a, went the, into the thing you're about to subtle weapon from a more grievous time. Touch out with your feelings, Obi-Wan. Um, and so, and so uh, somebody who is, I have to say, uh, just a, a terrific artist whose work I really enjoy, please help me because apparently you got his name correct. A paper doll was, let me get to the point, a paper doll was just exquisitely designed and put together in Photoshop by listener... David Galletly? David Galletly, who had previously done, if anybody's ever seen that wonderful drawing of me giving John a piggyback ride while he appears to be like looking off in the distance. I that, thought you were on my back. Is that, oh, maybe I'm on your back. I don't so, remember. So what? One goes one yeah, way. exactly. <laughs> one goes east, one goes west. Um, he uh, David Galletly uh, did this, and like amazing, like did it with named Photoshop layers, and and gave you a lot of really really fun stuff. Like I think those are professional Crocs you could be wearing. It looks like. Oh yeah, he mixed and match. He took you know one from column A and one from column B, so you can you can make a like you, you can do a Doctor Island of Doctor Moreau to this thing if you just open up Photoshop. <laughs> and people have people have been assembling their own favorite combinations. They even they did you see the one that made me look like Roderick slash you, the Angry Professor? Yeah, that was yeah. amazing. So yeah. we'll have some of those in show notes for this episode, which you can find at relay.fm slash rd. Not rec diffs, Marco. Did you see that? Did you see that broken link? We, yeah, well, we should have uh, redirects anyway. It's sickening. Talk to the kid. The kid will fix it. He, but, he's new uh, to the web. He'll figure it out. He's very young, and he has a Cockney accent, so something to think about. Anyway, I just wanted to say um, I, 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 I provisionally apologize for, for heaping scorn on you. You know that's not my thing. Um, but uh, I just did want to say thank you to, uh, to David. You should go check out all his stuff. He's, I don't know. I'm always amazed when I can ever look at somebody who draws something and it looks like a thing. I'm always amazed when somebody draws a thing, but with style. But he's got so much style and such like his own look for drawings. Very kind of what? How would you describe it? Kind of elongated, slightly maybe like not Art Deco. What's the word I'm looking for? Well, there's hyper realism. The early ones. If you go to the really early one, he did a picture, a hypercritical picture of mine that I actually have a big print of in my office. Have you ever seen that one? Like in that one, my arms are the length of like they're like four times the normal length. Right. So it's actually become less stylized over time. Though he's has stuck with the red nose thing, which. Is not, I mean, you can see that you have got one too. That that's, that's a style his bit. Thing. I think it's his bit. It's not just his bit. Like, look at the uh, look at Panics. Uh, you know how Panic has little avatars for themselves. They yeah. have pixelated ones and they had cartoon ones. They have the red nose thing going too. I don't know the origin of it, but I'm pretty sure it is not one person who came up with it. I think it's a style, kind of like the various anime styles of drawing characters. So, did anyway. you ever did you watch uh, Over the Garden Wall? No, I've heard about it I, and I've seen bits and pieces, but I don't actually. Uh, 
TiVo'd an episode. Uh, I, I believe you said in the past that you enjoy Adventure Time. If mm-hmm. you like Adventure Time, I'd suggest checking it out. Uh, preview it before your kids see it because it does have like a, the occasional kind of scary fantasy monster, but it's really fun. And uh, I believe that they have red noses. Wirt, Wirt and Gregory have uh, red noses, I believe. Does it have the Cartoon Network logo in the corner of the screen? Oh, no, I'm so sorry. Uh, I'll see if I can get you one with Dutch subs. It'll cover it up. Yeah. Uh, we just shift that to the other television. It's not like those shows are banned. They just can't be watched on a particular TV. Did you ever check your calendar? How much time you got left where you can play Destiny on there? Oh, no. I'm never going back. Oh, I thought you had The calendar what, what? is just to see, like, the idea was everyone was saying, well, it's bad, and mine took an X amount of time to fade, and a couple of people taking, you know, a year or more. So oh I just want to check in in a year and see how it's going. It's never, Destiny's never coming back to the TV. Oh, that's heartbreaking. Now, now, once again, there's so many, you know, Damn your eyes, John Syracuse. There's so many things where you've rubbed off on me. <laughs> Phrasing that uh, now I can't unhear fans, and now I can't unsee the cartoon, and now I actually see the Cartoon Network logo, and I think it's an atrocity. Because isn't but, it on like even during commercials? But you don't have a plasma TV, so what do you care? No, but I'm, I'm, I'm angry on your behalf. Yeah, that's, well, that's, see, that's careless. The thing is, uh, people without asthma t- plasma TVs get a little <laughs> bit... Uh, cocky here because they think this can't happen to them but if you've ever looked at one of the screens in an airport and like if it happens that one of them is off for some reason you can see the cnn logo or the ticker on like uh, or just look at the the, the baggage check-in lcds you know those little kiosks where you go to like you know check your bags and oh, stuff they the totally, they're totally ghost, ghostly looking yeah right and those are lcds so if you think lcds can't quote unquote burn in it's not the same mechanism as plasma it's entirely different but the bottom line is when the thing is off or not showing something, you can see something on the screen. And what you can see is whatever's been on the screen for really a long time. Now, those are extreme conditions where the screens are on all day and they're in the bright sunlight and they're really old and so on and so forth. So most of your TVs are probably fine, but nobody is safe. And what really bothers me is like, Destiny can't come back to the TV until I get rid of this plasma. I'm probably going to replace this plasma with an OLED in a couple of years when they start to settle down. OLEDs also have burning problems. Oh, man. So television technology sucks. It does. I, I've been... Mm, watching, you know, wire cutter in the various places. And yeah, I'm the John Syracuse, but I don't want to be a total dumbass. The conventional wisdom uh, there and elsewhere seems to be, or at least as of a few months ago, it was, this is a terrible time to buy because we don't know how 4K is going to shake out. But, you know, they had a couple of good recommendations, you know, in the low four figures, like basically under $2,000, you can get like a 60-inch TV. I'm very tempted. A lot of people are asking me about televisions, and for the past few years, it's been a bad time to buy because... Plasma's kind of peaked with the one that I bought uh, around that that era, and then they disappeared. That was the end. That was the end of an era. Uh, especially, there was a great time to buy when plasmas had the best pictures and the best response time and the lowest input lag, and were actually also cheaper than the highest end LCDs. It was a weird time. It was like LCDs were the new rage. Really big, good LCDs were super expensive, and you could get a better LCD a TV uh, that was a plasma that was better than the best LCD you could get for less money, sometimes significantly less money. So that was really crazy. That was kind of, I, I bought it like a little bit after that. But anyway, that time ended. Plasma went away. There's still a couple you can buy, but they're not great. Um, and Plasma has its own problems. And LCD ruled for a little while, but then we got into the 4K stuff. And now it's like, uh, is it time for me to get a 4K TV? No, it is definitely not. When will it be? Eh, a couple more years, you wait for it to settle down, blah, blah. Like, I think we said this on, uh, on other podcasts, but there's more to 4K than the 4K-ness, than the fact that there's more pixels. And people get like distracted bit, bit by that. Is it rate or something? There's different frame rates. There's a wider color gamut. Uh, there's, it, there are things that are better about it that are better in ways that, that are significant that have nothing to do with the fact that there's more pixels. There also happen to be more pixels, but depending on how far you are from your TV, that could mean nothing for you. 
um, visual, you know, human visual acuity is not getting better much faster. So if and when 4K does sort of sweep across the entire line of, of televisions in X number of years, pick whatever number you want for X, I think that'll be it for a while just based on distance to television because at the distances most people sit from the television 1080p is close to the limits of their uh, their visual perception but again what you're getting out of 4k is not just the extra pixels it's in theory better color uh you know higher dynamic range uh different possibly faster frame rates for things um so anyway yeah now is a terrible time to buy a tv and when people ask i say if i had to buy a tv like if someone came and stole my plasma or it broke or something like that I guess I would probably get the best OLED I could get with the idea that I would sell it within a year because I know the OLEDs that are out now are not good. They're like the really early plasmas where it's like, well, you know, this is a young technology and these are going to be the crappy ones and they're going to be weird about 4K and HDMI 2.0 and so like, but I would still get one because I want something that has a better picture quality than the one that got stolen. And the only way to get that is with an OLED. And so I would just buy it and say, I know I'm buying this now. I know it's really expensive, but I absolutely am going to sell it in one or two years something like that and most people don't want to deal with that so it's like well then then i say go in the other direction get the cheapest tv you can tolerate and just hold out for another few years well what's the what is the cart and horse situation here because i know so i've got a what a 5k imac so like but i i've tried to watch i've been able to watch like 5k videos i've shot on my phone they look great you know they're big um 4k videos i mean uh but watching like a 4k video on youtube i've got a I've got the top of the line iMac and a really fast connection and it still stutters. So I guess I'm wondering, like, as far as the cart and horse situation, like how much media will be available in the next year for 4K? I mean, it seems like it would be worth waiting a year just to see how everything shakes out. Well, most movies are not shot anything close to 4K still. So any movie that you can think of that exists already and has already, or has already been shot all the way down into the past, none of those are going to take full advantage of 4K. They may take more, you may be able to get more out of them than you get on a 1080p thing, but movies are just not mastered at 4K these days. Um, and like I said, it doesn't really matter that much because if you just do the math with one of those calculators of how big your TV is and how right, far you right. sit from it, it might not matter at all. So that's not what you're looking for. Again, mastered for 4K would mean like, oh, we can get more color depth out of the, maybe it was recorded with like a higher color depth than 8 bits per channel. Or that's not really how they do color depth in movies. But anyway, I don't know the technical terms, but the idea is you could have a larger range of colors if you went through a, re- a quote-unquote 4K remaster, even if you didn't, what you didn't get was actually any additional resolution because the original masters uh, didn't have much more resolution to give, but you could get more colors and more dynamic range as a lot of these new technologies that are being folded into the 4K standards that have to do with making the brighter spots brighter as compared to the darker spots. Like, if you go outside on a sunny day uh, and you look up at the sun, you can't look at it because you shouldn't do this, kids, because uh, <laughs> you will go blind and it's really bright. And a television, when they point the camera right at the sun, like someone's stuck in a desert and they show the sun, you can stare right at it and you're fine, right? Now, you don't want to crank it up to the point where it's like the sun and you can't uh, watch it, never mind that it would probably melt your house and your eyeballs. Um, but more dynamic range that you can get from current televisions leads to a more realistic, more interesting picture. It can be taken too far, and there's going to be a couple of years where we figure out how to do higher dynamic range in a way that is not annoying to people and how they figure out how to master movies for it and everything. But that's that and, and being able to, sp- to display more colors uh, and higher frame rates if you're into that sort of thing, which potentially could be really good for things like sports and stuff. That is the next frontier that just happens to come packaged in the UHD or whatever the hell they're calling the standards that everyone else just calls 4K. I wonder if video games will drive a lot of that because, I mean, I'm 
don't pretend to understand how you make a video game, but it seems like you, I could, I could imagine a lot more product coming out in 4K faster with video games than with new movies. Yeah, because uh, the there's two things that are going to keep that from happening. To shoot a movie at 4K is just a matter of upgrading your cameras oh, and the rest of your workflow. Oh, the movement, all that. Uh, yeah. But but to to do a video game, there's two parts that are a problem. One is art assets. Art assets are usually created by humans, even if they're created by humans taking pictures of real things. And creating art assets at higher resolutions is tremendously more expensive. It's kind of like the difference between like doing set design in a world where you're on standard def television and you can just be like, well, I'll just put this box back there and it will totally look like a real crate and really it's made out of cardboard. Whereas once you go HD, you can't put the cardboard back there because it looks like a piece of cardboard, right? right. Um, so with art assets in games, it is much harder to have a group of artists drawing like oh draw me the texture i'm going to use on a crate model a crate for me really low resolution this looks crate-ish it's fine or whatever but once you crank up that resolution it's like i can't just slap something together and call it a crate it's going to look terrible i have to start making it either we have to pick a stylized thing where it's like cell shaded or some other stylized thing where it's not supposed to look realistic but if it's supposed to look realistic like many games are it's much harder to make that artwork and it becomes just so much more expensive because every little thing you do it takes longer to do uh, by people so that's one thing and the second thing is when it comes time to render the game uh it's you need more computing power to render higher resolution and the higher the resolution the more detailed the more you need to make the gameplay reflect that it looks weird to have something that is realistically textured break apart into pieces that look like they're giant fisher price pieces because that's not how a real thing would break apart and it, it sort of doesn't match up so mm-hmm. even today and on 1080 there's a lot of games like you know halo 5 that just came out there's a couple of good articles about how they dynamically downscale the resolution to maintain the frame rate. They can't even maintain 1080p on modern consoles for this first-person shooter. You know, behind the scenes, when it, when the frame rate starts to get close to dipping, they crank down the resolution to make sure they can keep the frame rate up. They're going for 60 frames per second or whatever, but which is uh, rare for first-person shooters. But yeah, I don't I don't think on PC gaming, 4K type things are already kind of there. But for television console games. I think they will actually lag behind con- uh, movie content and stuff. I think movies are probably starting to be shot in 4K right now. I don't know. Maybe one of our movie industry people would know, but I think that'll happen first. Uh, and other than like, you can take a PC game now and just keep cranking the resolution. But as you crank the resolution up, the textures usually don't get better. Like they ship a maximum quality set of textures with the PC and they're usually pretty darn good. But that's all just up to the power that your PC has for consoles. They don't bother shipping those super high resolution ones because they know it's going to be displayed at 1080p or less. Like, and they'll upscale to 1080p. So when Halo downscales the resolution, it's still showing 1080p on your TV. It's just getting upscaled. This episode of Reconcilable Differences is brought to you in part by Backblaze. You guys know Backblaze. It's a personal and business backup for Macs and PCs. With Backblaze, you get unlimited online backup for documents, music, photos, videos, all your data. And even now, right this minute, you can go and get a no-risk two-week trial at backblaze.com slash differences. Boy, I love I love back. I am running Backblaze right now. Literally, you can hear it. It's, it's right there. It's just running all the time. These, these people are great. They've backed up over 150 petabytes of data, whatever that is. They have restored over 10 billion files. So you have online access to all of your files from anywhere, securely, anywhere you've got an internet connection. They even have iPhone and Android apps to access all of your smaller files on the go. You can just grab something. Just grab it. Nobody's going to stop you. You can restore one file at a time or all of your files with this very easy web restore. Or get this. You can, you can get, you get them on the horn. You order yourself one of these USB hard drives from Backblaze. You get your entire disk back in one place. If you ever need to get everything, they're going to do that for you. 
They have a native application for Mac and PC. There's not any kind of weird non-native stuff happening. I'm not going to mention any names here, but this thing just runs. It is efficient. It's not going to eat up your processes. It's the best. You can back up any of the external drives that you have connected to your computer right now. Offer that same $5 a month. Even if you're already using Time Machine or an external drive, you should use Backblaze as your offsite backup. This is what I do. It's like having a belt and suspenders and then a couple more belts. There's no throttling, and the upload threading means that you can back up quickly. There are no add-ons. There's no gimmicks or additional charges. It's just that $5 a month per computer for unlimited, unthrottled online backup. So please go and give this a try. As a listener to our program, you get a two-week free trial by going to backblaze.com differences. Our thanks to Backblaze for supporting Reconcilable Differences and all of Relay FM. Well, I've, I've finally stopped saying things like, I'll never need something faster than this, or I'll never need something better than this or bigger than that. I, that's, that's a fool's errand. Good for you. Yeah, that's taken a long time. But, um, but so we've got a f- barely over 40-inch TV. It's like a big, small TV. Mm-hmm. They don't even they don't even make them that small anymore, except for like kitchen televisions. Well, I don't, you know, we had this thing for two or three years, and it still feels, in the context of the room that it's in, it feels asinine. And yet, I do wish it were bigger. That's so we're looking at maybe getting. I've gotten I don't know how this happened, but I've gotten clearance to get us a bigger TV. So that's why I'm I'm shopping around. But the truth is, what you just described, you know, I, it's funny because I I really should look into stuff beyond just saying 720 and 1080 because I do notice such a difference. Like if I get a cop- copy of Doctor Who that fell off the back of a truck that claims to be 720, claims to be 1080, versus what I play, honestly, what I play from the iTunes store, the iTunes store one looks better. I mean, it looks crisper. I don't know if that's some kind of, I don't know what they're doing. Well, to I it. mean, that's, that's the compression, you know, like how much, how compressed is it? So the, the final resolution, like, oh, this display is on a frame that's this number of pixels by this number of pixels. Sure. Fine. But how heavily compressed is it? You know, right. you, you can just compress the video to death. And when it's displayed at that resolution, it still looks like garbage. So that's why one of the reasons the Blu-rays look better is they are less compressed. Like a Blu-ray movie is like 50 gigabytes. So the same movie, if you downloaded an H.264 like blu-ray rip that's recompressed to make it smaller you can get a 50 gigabyte blu-ray down to much smaller sizes but you lose quality yeah it's always weird when you see that and you're like uh looking for things that fall off the back of a truck and you'll see two apparently you know very similar looking ones and they'll both claim to be say 720p and one of them will be 1.4 gigs one of them will be three gigs one of them will be like eight or nine gigs and of course, then you'll see the occasional 1080p ones that you, like you say, are like 25 or 50 gigs. And uh, I don't know. It's I'm, I You see 1080p <laughs> ones that are three gigs too. Like it's just, it really just depends on the, the settings when they compression it. And the audio obviously as well. If they have uncompressed audio, that really blows things up. Um, but yeah, it's a, like, it's a trade-off that you're making. It's, it's size versus quality. And at a certain point, like the whole point of these compression algorithms is they rely on our inability to perceive these differences. But at a certain point, you can notice. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you know, it's funny. I, I, uh, I never was much of a size queen when it comes to these kinds of quality. I could always tolerate fairly low uh, bit rate MP3s, you know, really anything over 160, especially anything over like 192. I'm, I'm generally totally fine with that. But man, I, I'm the only one in my house who cares about this. But uh, we'll start watching something, and I'll just be like, "Ugh, it's, it's it's just too muddy." Like, is this? Is, don't don't you guys see this? Like, we watch an old episode of like Top Chef that's in SD. You know, you, you watch it on Hulu or something, and it just it looks so gross. Yeah, the worst are really dark shows like The Walking Dead or even things like Breaking Bad that like are broadcast over our cable like multiple 
uh, television channels shoved into one little skinny area of bandwidth. Yeah, like in a hotel room. Oh, stuff my you get in a hotel room. No, even even just here, like a hotel room ride is usually worse. But even on this really expensive cable that I pay for from from FiOS, they jam a whole bunch of channels. Particularly AMC for a long time was really jammed into this narrow spread of the the, the bandwidth spectrum that's coming to our house. And the banding in the shadow areas was crazy. Like you'd have this shadowy area around, you know, Don Draper's head on Mad Men or something. And it was just like, oh, like an 8-bit dither from a Mac 2 in like 1987. <laughs> it was just, there was like four colors, black. It looks like the Warner Brothers logo, like a yeah, Target. Yeah, dotty brown. <laughs> and it would shimmer and move and wave. And, and that's not I because. I hate that. That drives me nuts. That's not because of the quality of your television. And that's not because of, uh, you know. The, the compression out well it is the compression out but like they, they just they needed this this show to be as small as possible to fit in the allotted spots and whatever their bandwidth thing is and they can press the hell out of it and it looks like crap and so if you were to get Mad Men on blu-ray and look at that same scene it's like ah thank god because at a certain point it becomes distracting and you notice like i try not to notice it and generally i don't but at a certain point you're like you notice it it's as if it's suddenly the, the thing has, has become cell shaded or posterized or whatever yeah, I remember one time a few years ago, uh, Adam Lissigore was saying on Twitter, um, like when you, when you, you know, the the unforgettable HBO credit um, comes on, you know, with all the all the static. It's like I thought you were going to talk about the one where the little white lights spin around the chrome O in the HBO. Remember that one? Oh yeah, back in the day. Yeah. But, you know, he's asking, you know, what is the show when you hear when you see and hear that? What is the theme song you imagine coming on? It's really interesting to see everybody's different ones. For me, it's still Mr. Show or Sex in the City, oddly enough. Like I still expect to hear or maybe Curb Your Enthusiasm. But, you know, what's funny is that <laughs> that uh, what do you call that? What's the term for that? The credit, the not the bumper, the button, the thing I'm at the, the beginning. The wrong person to ask. But uh, you know where I'm going with this. Probably it comes up and it's, it says HBO like feature presentation or something. And it's just an incredibly complex pattern of static, but like it renders like crap on on everything, because <laughs> you know it's like when you watch water or leaves in a in a movie, like you see all of that. What artifacts? I guess you call it. Yeah. Well, the the, the compression algorithms break the image. Most of them break the image down into regions that they can try to reason about and say, I can't tell you everything that's in this region, but I can come up with some sort of formulation that will reproduce what's in this region using less space than if i had told you that the color of every single pixel right yeah and static is like the worst case scenario because how do you characterize it it's like well it's totally chaotic this, this region's got a lot of crap in it there's some white and there's some black and there's no real pattern to them so how do you approximate that without saying this one's white that one's black this one's black that one's white how do you approximate that and so that it really shows the compression because the compress like think of the detail of the transition from dark to light how many transitions and hard edges from dark to light are there in static especially artificial static like where it's not real static they're they're simulating it by just making noise yeah. it is the worst case scenario for compression algorithms i thought you were going to say that a generation of people seeing the static hbo logo who have never seen legit static in real oh, life right. on their television oh god so true. Last night, uh, we were watching Fargo last night, and there's this really gorgeous overhead shot of, like, what, like aspen or birch trees? Probably aspen trees from above. But it's just this gorgeous. You see the snow. You see the bare aspen trees and the shadow that's being cast by them. It's a, it's a really, really beautiful, um, you know, kind of moving image in a, in a really freaky scene. And um, But there was this, what's the word, Not a, uh, like a, almost like a bende? 
to it, like a what's the word I'm looking for? Like when you see or a moray, you know what I mean? Where, yeah, like, I don't know how to pronounce that word, but I know the word. But you know, like 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 it's like where they tell you don't wear like a striped shirt on yep. TV. Yep. Because <laughs> don't wear a horizontally striped shirt; it's going to look your shirt's moving. And uh, it's man, I only noticed it at times like that. But I I can mostly live with that. I just, you know, I, I hate Blu-rays. I and I can tolerate these streaming services. We pay for Hulu, you know, with no commercials. What do we pay for? We pay for Hulu, no commercials, Netflix, HBO, Amazon Prime, plus then all the various movies and stuff we buy on iTunes. I'm probably forgetting ones. But you know, it's it's mostly it's mostly pretty okay. But I, I do not want to have a future where I go back to needing plastic discs. And that, that just that feels like defeat to me. I still buy the Blu-rays because I'm still I demand to have the highest quality version of movies that I care about. So I got it, it, inside there out is, on, and there there is a difference. There absolutely is a difference. Yeah, and I, I got inside out on Blu-ray, but we made sure we got the one that has the digital iTunes copy included. So when the kids watched it, they watched it off the Apple TV on iTunes. But I feel better knowing that we have the good one. And when I watch my Miyazaki movies which generally are not available legitimately anyplace except for on disc, but I definitely watched them off the Blu-ray and I have the kids watch them off the Blu-ray too. Mm. Um, hmm. What's, um, what are some of your favorites in terms of like how it turned out on the Blu-ray? Like, are, are there, are there some where you feel like, like, you know, I, we talked about the Godfather on here before the, the restoration of the Godfather and how many people were frustrated with the noise and all of that. Are there certain things that, that you think look particularly good on Blu-ray versus other media? Or are they all just uniformly equally better? Well, it's it's difficult to say because the ones that stand out in my memory are the ones that look messed up on Blu-ray. Like so Star Wars, for example, setting aside all of the special edition stuff, even the completely unaltered scenes are color corrected to my eyes incorrectly and badly. So that really annoys me about the Star Wars Blu-rays. Is this where you get like a like a you get the pink ship and stuff like that? Yeah. Like at the beginning, you get the big the ship goes by and it's kind of pink. And no, but like some of the engines were pink. It's just not the way I remember. Particularly Darth Vader's lightsaber doesn't look red enough. Uh, there's a weird cast to the entire thing. And like, yeah, the, the pink thing is like a lot of the stuff that, that I remember is being like, you know, candy apple red uh, ends up being weird purplish light pink. Uh, and just it just doesn't doesn't look right to me. And you've seen lots of things like here's like, who knows what the right colors are at this point? Right. But people are like, here's a Technicolor print that we salvaged. Here's all the different versions of the movie. You've seen what Harmony does to put it together. That's why I watch the Harmony versions. They they're try amazing. To they're get, amazing. Yeah. They try to get a version that looks like people remember. Whether that's actually what the original looked like or not, it just looks better to my eyes. So that's really mostly what I'm looking for. Most of the Blu-rays I have, they're like, I, I don't have the DVD one usually to compare with, although I did have the Goodfellas DVD. Goodfellas DVD was a great, it was a, I believe it's a flipper. I got to check. It's either yeah, a flipper no, or Yeah, no, I've heard, I've heard people say that. I think that's the case. Yeah, and I think they were trying to get a higher quality version to say, well, if we use less compression, we could, you know, but then it won't fit on one side, so we'll put it on two sides. Maybe it was before they went multi-layer, whatever it is. The DVD of, of Goodfellas does not look good. The Blu-ray looks a lot better. Uh, and mostly I noticed it in, in areas like, you know, in color banding, and especially in dark movies where like the shadow detail just like the compression algorithm just bails on it and just ends up doing a bunch of uh really apparent color bands and it just looks totally wrong because in a movie theater on film maybe your projector is not good and just kind of washes out but in the, in the days before digital projection the way that would manifest is you would lose shadow detail in a smooth way like it would basically just look like all black or like black kind of fading to muddy but that is much more acceptable than that same area showing up as three distinct color bars. 
because that just doesn't look like a movie anymore and it takes me out of the experience oh, no so. no it looks like you're watching like a, a crappy copy on a computer it's like cinepack from the old QuickTime days when he remembers that algorithm it was terrible um trying to trying to remember um yeah yeah you know did, so you watched the document we talked about this a million times but the documentary on the restoration and and going back and and like when, <laughs> when they were showing like the available prints that they had for especially the first one it's just it was amazing it was just amazing to me yeah it's too bad there's not somebody who could actually help us locate and properly restore a good copy of uh a new hope I don't care so much about New Hope. I just wanted Empire to get the attention it deserves. I need I need to go back around and watch those again because I can't <laughs> tell if it's sentimentality. I watched the first half anyway. Uh, I still really feel like A New Hope is still my favorite and it's probably for sentimental reasons. Yeah, I, I can see that. Like, I'm not saying, you know, a but New no, Hope but is you, I mean, anything, but. you're far from alone on this. That It is... I was I don't know why I was looking at Rotten Tomatoes today and I was looking at the you know they do the countdown to the upcoming Star Wars and it's like all the movies listed in order. I like Rotten Tomatoes. I mean it's it's you know of the sites that are out there I think it's good. But uh oh god they gave um they for some reason they included the Clone Wars in it and gave it a terrible review which I thought was kind of dumb. But uh yeah but they they definitely had Empire. Uh I think it was like 94 tomatoes. It's just it's like it's a movie for older people. It's more mature, more accomplished, and more sophisticated themes, more sophisticated everything, really. It doesn't, maybe that, you know, and again, if you have a, a place in your heart for A New Hope because that was the one in the original and kicked everything off, I think I was a little bit too young for Star Wars to have that. But I think, I don't even know if I saw it in 77. I might have only seen it in 79, the re-release or whatever. Um, but Empire was the one that counted for me. And it just so happens that Empire is actually objectively the best film in the trilogy. <laughs> I mean, like, is that, is that an, how it just happens? I mean, no. I mean, like, from an adult perspective, like setting aside any sentimentality, or whatever. Just like in terms of filmmaking, how good is the script? How good is the directing? How good is the acting? How tightly is it plotted? You know, it's just, it is. That that's why I don't. You know, no matter how much one, it's different between your favorite and the best. Well, and it's also, I think it's it, it's I think it's the most affecting, but it also uh, does. I feel like I'm just pulling this out of my ass, but I, I feel like it really does. Like I'm trying to think about what's different about the three movies. And Empire does such a nice balance of um, darker themes, but not making them ridiculous, um, and but still having like what we loved—the joy, the joyfulness of of the first one. You know what I mean? And, and before you get into all the like the wackadoo slapstick of like Jedi, yeah, and and it, and it, it grew in sophistication with like the, the sort of the the rough outline of the characters laid down in A New Hope is still there, and it just cranked it up a little bit with a little bit more clever writing and thinking and acting. And if you read those, uh, who wrote those? Is it Risner or something? The, the gigantic making of coffee table books. Oh, those are terrific. Yeah, which are excellent. And you just read about Empire and. The people who were involved, in, from the actors to, to, you know, the director himself to Lucas and everyone else, thinking about how each scene would play out, it seemed like they were on top of their game in terms of clear-headed thinking about what makes for believable characters and a good scene and the right amount of drama. And just, they were concerned about all the right things and not concerned about all the, you know, they talk so little about spaceships and lasers they, they get the people like right but they also the relationships are plausible and the the motivations are plausible it, yeah and, like and, you, and, you care about what you believe what those people feel you you see it on the screen and i think it's an unusually uh subtle and assured attempt at you know 
showing these relationships of these these fantasy movie characters. Yeah, and I was really struck by like how the actors were bringing like to to the scene in a way that like I guess maybe oh, maybe I don't know anything about movie making, but maybe it only happens after the actors have a little bit uh, more stature. Like, cause hey, we were in the first Star Wars together, and I forget if by that point Harrison Ford was Indiana Jones yet, but uh, like. And they come in and they have ideas about what their character might do or say or how this might be played or, you know, different line readings and stuff like that. And it's, you know, it's a bunch of people all contributing a little bit of tension of like each one fighting for their character to do the right thing and the director mediating between them. But it's like you're struck by how much all the people involved in these things care about the scene in a way that you think like cynically like, oh, they just show up and it's like, you know, Harrison Ford and like, oh, you can write this stuff, George, but you can't read it or whatever. And like, I don't even this weird space movie. And Alec Guinness was so famously like dismissive of Star Wars or whatever. But like, you know, reading about the, the, you know, the carbonite scene and the whole, you know, I love you, uh, I know business and how they play off each other and how like the, the tension in the scenes in the Millennium Falcon that the actors were invested in giving good performances and making these believable characters and had actual input, positive input into the final result in a way that you wouldn't expect if you just like, oh, it's one of those silly space movies and they're just in it to get their paycheck and who cares? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I mean, it's funny because the reports, I, I, you know, I haven't followed this stuff as closely as you, but it sounds like uh, Guinness's relationship was... Uh, somewhere between <laughs> confused and fraught. Uh, Graham off Tarkin, uh, Peter, um, what's his name? Peter, what's his name? Who plays Graham off Tarkin? Know, I never know the actors' names. It's not O'Toole. Peter Cushing. <laughs> Peter Peter Cushing supposedly had one of yeah, the most yeah. famous. Like, I, I, what do these words mean? He was there for a very short. I remember I read this in the. Oh God, I hate saying A New Hope. The, the the big coffee table book about the first movie. Uh, and and just it sounded like he was not around for more than a few days. And he just didn't, he's like, what is it? <laughs> like, what is happening here? What do these lines mean? Yeah, but but the, the great thing about a, uh, a workman-like British actor is they yep. come in, they read the lines, they get the job done, they do the best job they can do. And we look at him, we're like, wow, amazing. Oh, he's, he, he totally sold it. The scenes like with him and Princess Leia are so great. It's I I feel like he 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 and Guinness ha- lend so much gravitas to that movie, even and, though they don't care, give a damn about it, and have right. no and have no understanding of it, and it is not their generation. They do the job that they're hired to do, and they do it well. Yeah, on the one hand, Guinness wrote these letters at home. I, I think I saw one of the letters he wrote about like this ridiculous movie that he's in. But then on the other hand, he supposedly uh, bought everybody drinks on the last day. Sounds like a gentleman. Yeah, no, they're just they're just they're there to do a job. Yeah, yeah. I should watch the first half again. This episode of Reconcilable Differences is brought to you in part by Casper. To learn more about Casper right now, please visit casper.com slash diffs. That's casper.com slash D-I-F-F-S. Let me lay this out for you real easy-like. Casper is a company that offers an obsessively engineered mattress at a shockingly fair price. Casper's mattress is one of a kind. It's a new kind of hybrid mattress that combines premium latex foam with memory foam. It's got just the right sink and just the right bounce. The best of two technologies come together for better nights and brighter days. I have personally, in my actual home, in my actual bed, not to be candid, I've been sleeping on a Casper mattress for over a year, and I love this thing. I love the quality of this product. I love the quality of the sleep that I get. But you know what? Even over a year later... I'm still stunned at how easy this company has been to deal with. 
and just how painless they have made the entire process. If you've ever tried to go into your typical retail store, you get to go lay on some filthy bed for a couple minutes and then decide whether you'd like to have it for the next five years. That's super creepy. Don't do it. Casper is going to get you into a wonderful mattress in a way that is so easy to deal with. With Casper, a surprisingly small box magically appears at your door and you carry it up to your room. It's a surprisingly small box. You can actually carry this thing. And use this uh, little dingus to gently swipe open a bag full of awesome mattress. The mattress gently inhales. And within minutes, you have everything you need for a good night's sleep. It's actually that easy. It is actually that simple. But here's the crazy part. Casper also offers an equally simple, risk-free trial and return policy. And that means you can try sleeping on your Casper mattress for 100 nights. And if for some reason it's not to your liking, you can send it back. So we're talking about free delivery, painless returns, and sleep. Glorious sleep. As I mentioned, the prices for these mattresses are just incredible. $500 for a twin-size mattress, $950 for a king-size mattress. Go and compare that to the filthy items in your local retail store, and you will be as happy as I am. Maybe happier. I'm not that happy of a person, but God, I love this mattress. Casper even has a special offer to listeners of Reconcilable Differences. You're going to get $50 toward the purchase of any mattress by visiting casper.com diffs and use that offer code diffs, D-I-F-F-S, Get yourself one of these mattresses, carry it up to your room, apply the dingus. Terms and conditions do apply. Our thanks to Casper for supporting Reconcilable Differences and all of Relay FM. This week, I think we have two potential uh, Uber topics that we could talk about for our uh, main topic section. And I, I like them both. Uh, you can have office building or you can have Christmas tree. Or, or, or you could let me decide. Yeah, you you pick because I I like both of them. Um, well, can we talk about it, or do we just just pick? See, I okay. Here's the thing. Here's the thing. We got jobs, and we got holidays and vacations. Jobs is one I was very excited about that you entered in last week, and I, I'm very excited to talk about jobs because I'd love to hear what you think about that. But on a personal basis, I'm very interested in how you feel about holidays and vacations, which is very much related to jobs. Because it seems like, you know, there's always the joke about, you know, you and your vacations or whatever. But it seems like that's very important to you. There's a joke about me and my vacations? What joke is this? Oh, yeah. Oh, it's over on the Slack. Everybody's always just making fun of you. No, that's not true. Um, No, no, no. Just that, uh, like, it seems like it's something you really look forward to and you plan very carefully. And But I always also sense, I don't know, I guess I'm always interested in the idea of holidays and vacations also out of the various senses of obligation, of like making everybody entertained, having to go visit family, do all this stuff. You got to send out the cards. You kind of make it sound like it's your wife who loves taking the family photos and sending them out maybe more than you. There's all these kinds of things. And I'm just wondering, you know, I just, I think that's an interesting topic too. Although I love jobs. Well, you got to pick one. It's your, no, it's on no you. I don't. No, I you don't. Do. It's your week. You're week to pick. No, it's, it's my week to be mean to you. And part oh, of being mean to you is right. causing you to actually make a choice, which you, you treat, you think is being mean. <sighs> I should write that down. Well, unless you, uh, we're recording this a couple days before Thanksgiving 2015, unless you have a strong objection, I, I like holidays and vacations. Done. I think this will end up being a different topic for me than it is for you, because a lot of the things you listed and a lot of things that are stereotypically associated with holidays that, that I can also relate to, because I understand that this is the common experience, don't really apply to me. So my main struggle is, why why are you not like, holiday normative i guess or whatever why why am i why do i have such a different relationship to holidays and vacations than other people and i think we should concentrate on holidays uh, vacations for the purpose of holidays because we're not talking about like disney vacations here we're talking about 
people have off work because of some holiday, whether it's just the winter holiday when kids get off school or the actual Christmas holiday or Thanksgiving or some, some event where the expectation is that you're going to gather with family or whatever. And my relationship to holidays of all kinds is very different than most other people. And so my main issue is not with the things that people expect, like, oh, I got to see my family for Thanksgiving. And then, you know, Uncle Bob's going to get drunk and everyone's going to argue about politics and I'm going to get disapproving looks from my mother and like, all you know, whatever, all this, all the stereotypical stuff. I generally don't have that. I have a different thing, which is. Yeah, I, I would love to hear what do you perceive as being different? Well, I, you know, I, I don't feel a lot of the obligations that other people feel. Um, and that is a difficulty because other people have the expectation of you, but if you don't have the expectation of yourself that, you know, you're going to visit this number of people and like, if you visited this person at this time, you got to visit that person or like, you got to you got to stop off at both people's houses on Christmas or all four people. And you got to buy these people presents for this people's kids. And you know, like all those different rules and obligations, I don't, I don't feel like I, I don't feel obligated by them. So very often if I, if I don't comply with them, other people see me as being a terrible person, which maybe I am. But like from my perspective, like there's, there's a difference in expectations. There's a difference in the mental model of what, what I think people expect of me and what I think is reasonable to do. Um, and so when I hear about other people's experience of like, it's a holiday, I have to go to relative X and relative Y with all of my kids. And if I don't, my family won't be speaking to me. Like, I have to do it. We have to go to these people's parents' house and those people's parents' house with all the kids, and I hate it, and I dread it, and it's like and it's like you're ruining your own holiday to fulfill the obligations put upon you by your family to do something you don't want to do. Like, that's not a holiday. That's not a vacation. And yet they do it. And maybe they're just overblowing it. Like, they really don't hate it that much. They're just like, oh, you know, I got to go see my family or whatever. But I just wouldn't do it. And I guess my family would never speak to me again if I had that type of family. Luckily, I don't. Um, but... It just seems it just seems alien to me. Huh. I mean, I don't know if you have you ever felt that kind of like like that that other people in your family extended or immediate family expect certain things to happen on a holiday, and if it was up to you, you wouldn't do some or all of them. Well, at the risk of revealing too much about my my own broken interior world, there's there's a phrase that I, that I use when we're talking about traveling with, you know, where you're worried about the happiness and well-being of everybody on the trip with you. Like if you're by yourself, you don't care, but with your kids. And what I w- the phrase that I use uh, somewhat unfelicitously is that it's a seam exposure. So, you know, when you go on a trip and things don't, like just a review, when you go on a trip and things don't go well and the kid's sick or you can't find a place to breastfeed or like the food's all gross and expensive, like that all in itself, that's just facts in the world that shouldn't mean anything. But, but A, they do accumulate. And then B, as they accumulate, the stress rises and, you know, all of these sort of like things that might have been bubbling under the surface can come can come up. And at least I feel very self-conscious about my competence in a situation like that. And I feel very kind of sensitive that like I'm, not, I'm doing a bad job here. So in the same way that I feel that when traveling, uh, without any provocation from anybody else, I very much feel that way at the holidays. Like I feel like I'm very rarely doing all I could do uh, in almost any way to make this a good thing. And I, I fret about it. And it doesn't even take anybody being a jerk about it. I, I will do that to myself. But it, it doesn't hurt when other people do that. So you're worried that you are not providing an adequate holiday for the rest of the people who are depending on you to do that? 
Well, yes and no. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, kind of, yes. I mean, for example, like, you just never, uh, it's, it's, from the point of view, and this is just my, I, there are not people saying this to me. They may be saying this behind my back. They're not saying this to me, but like, you know, your family could always use more time with your kid, right? Um, anybody like, you know, and I'll be in that same position someday, God willing. If, if I live long enough, I will probably hope I could see my kid more and see, you know, her family more and so forth. So, you know, I'm, I'm not, I'm not, I hope I'm not so dim as to say like, I'll never be in that position. But that's why I use that phrase I put here on the list under holidays of uh, producers versus consumers. That's the way I think about work a lot. You know, we think about work, there are the people who produce stuff and the people who consume stuff. And that disparity can sometimes make things very complicated. If there's somebody who wants a lot of stuff from somebody who needs to make a lot of stuff, that can be really complicated. And especially when your kids are young, uh, there is a fair amount, or when you're young, there's a fair amount of pressure to participate and to be there for things. And even if that's not like an obvious or overt thing, I still feel a lot of guilt about that. I still, I, I don't know. I, sometimes holidays can be a little stressful for me and I think I bring most of it on myself. So are you producing cute children and then the cheek pinchers are consuming those cute children? Is this the dynamic? Mm, could be, but I mean, the most obvious way to look at it is let's say... You know, uh, like I think about it in my wife's family, like she's got this one one brother who's kind of the de facto head of the family. Like as far as I know, there was never a vote about this. <laughs> there was never a meeting about this. But and he's not like an alpha guy, but he's like the dad of the brothers. Like he is the guy where like stuff just gets accomplished. And not to say anybody else doesn't participate or isn't. I mean, every it's a great family. Get, don't get me wrong. But to, to make the point that I need to make, I'm just I'm stipulating that in in many situations there's somebody who ends up being I, I almost said the alpha dog, and that's not what I mean because it's not about power. It's about execution. Where there's always like the first person who's there to step in to help. Like when Grandma breaks her hip, yeah, come stay with me, even though we've already got other people staying with us. That kind of giving and giving and giving person, who I would say is in that case one of the producers of of the the family stuff and then there are other people who are the consumers of stuff who will come along and you know oh maybe they picked up a pie at the store and stuff like that but you know one aspect that i really admire about the producers in that case is that they often like kind of rarely bitch about their position of producers because that's that's kind of just how they are a lot of them and uh that said that role in a lot of families is frequently filled by women uh, who end up being the ones who have to, it's, and you know, I don't know how many like large holiday like events you've hosted at your house, but it's a lot of work. It's pretty expensive and it can be extremely stressful uh, because you really find yourself basically, you are the host. You are the person who has to take care of all that. So, you know, uh, I, I think about that a lot and I think about like how I could be more of a producer and less of a consumer, which makes me kind of just feel worse about it sometimes. But, you know, it's, if you want to be good at this stuff, it can't be something that occurs to you toward the end of November. It needs to be something more, you know, in the fiber of how you are and how you conduct yourself. It isn't the kind of thing where you can, like, you know, strap on a Santa beard and suddenly be everybody's pal. It's more like, you know, are you that kind of person or are you not? Because there's some people who are that person and uh, they just end up doing, you know, just a tremendous amount of the heavy lifting. I think there's a lot of expectations. Like what you touched on there, I think, is... Some people who were in that position of like arranging everything um, or put themselves in that position of arranging everything, maybe doing it because, and I've, I haven't found myself doing this, and I'm the last person to ever be one of those people who organizes these things, because they're trying to reproduce 
a, the holidays of, uh, experience of their youth. Like when I was a kid, uh, one set of grandparents was like 30 minutes away. The other set was two hours away. Lots of my relatives were 30 minutes away or less. Lots of aunts and uncles and great aunts and great uncles, you know, live pretty close together, all things considered in the suburbs, thanks to the magic of Levittown and, you know, a bunch of Italians moving from the city out onto the island and all like, I mean, my grandfather, you know, I had relatives who lived three houses in a row next to each other in Levittown, right? Because that's just wow, what you did. Wow, for real? Yeah. Like, I mean, they wow. came from, from, from you know, the, the GI Bill and all the other stuff after World War II. They come from the city out to the island and you get houses and you get a house next to your cousin, next to your brother, like just three in a row. And then like other people, you know, are, are in the other town over around like, so when we had holidays, we had holidays with a lot of people around, always at least one set of grandparents whole bunch of aunts and uncles and cousins all the time. Not that far away, not a long drive, even just not even for holidays, just for no reason. Going to see grandma and grandpa this weekend, right? Like, it wasn't like it was where your entire family lives in the same house, but it was kind of like a medium point between uh, where we are now, you know, where it was ever spread out much more. Um, So if you try to, like, reproduce that, where every Christmas has at least like one entire, like which side of the family is going to be, are we going to be with for Christmas? And it'll be like the entire side of the family, like all the brothers and sisters and aunts and uncles and grandparents and, and cousins, as many as could come, like you'd fill the house with a bunch of, you know, Italian looking people. And, and, <laughs> and, and that was your holiday experience. And some people feel like anything less, like especially when they have kids, I want my kids to know all of their cousins and to hang out with them and to know all of their aunts and uncles and to have a million presents from all their different relatives. But if you live in a situation that is not like that, where every single one of your brothers and sisters and parents and cousins and uncles lives in a different state, right, across the entire country, that's just not going to happen. And if you're determined to make that happen, that can cause tensions because you're like, am I not... Am I not providing my kids with the kind of holidays that I had when I was a kid? Right. Um, and the kids don't, you know, they only know what they know, right? They'd much rather have a get I get what you're saying. I like, and it, But it's funny because we're always doing, it's like a game of telephone, um, like a game of emotional, familial telephone where, you know, we, you know, we grow up watching these certain TV shows or having these certain traditions. And when you're a kid, you know, there are some kinds of tensions and weirdnesses that you're aware of and many, many, many that you're not. That, you, that will not occur to you until you've left for college and had time to really think about it. And you go, oh, wow, this person was born six months after their parents married. That's super interesting. You know what I'm saying? You do those weird kinds of math or you realize like there's all these little little puzzle pieces that you fit together. But I get what you're saying, which is that like without realizing it, you know, you – and again, it's I, I, I hate to be all Charlie Brown about this, but there is something like s- somewhat melancholy about the holidays in a lot of ways. Anyhow, like especially, you know, the, the winter holidays for a variety of reasons. But one of them is this strange feeling of like it's a weird combination of nostalgia and imagined nostalgia and aspirational nostalgia. So it's like it's, there's what you had, there's what you wish you had, and what you hope other people can get. And when all those things come together, I think it's not unusual at all. That can be very emotional and exciting and difficult sometimes. But, you yeah. know, in the, in the case of her, just to be clear, in the case of her brother, he's definitely not like that. Like, he's my hero. Like, um, he's just like, 
when people die in the family, like he's just collapsing on it. Like he just shows up places. And the guy's really busy. He like runs a company. But he's just one of those like, you know, you get those people in your life that just like a super person. You get these people who are just like, I I can't even imagine. Like I, I am exhausted after picking my kid up from school and buying her a sandwich. And I'm just laying on the floor looking at the iPad because I'm exhausted. And this guy's like jetting around the country. There's just those kind of people where I don't think it is an overt like, you know, I want to be seen in this way. It's just that's how they're cut out. Yeah, no, I think I think where it goes wrong is where people really do want their kids to have the holiday experience that they had, but but better. <laughs> but but yeah, but you can't because those people aren't around and Jr. who doesn't agree with it and that they feel bad about it and that they try like they I'm going to try to do that and I'm going to be upset when it doesn't happen and when this relative bails on me and says they don't want to fly across the country or you know can't afford it or doesn't want to host us over there or whatever just be like don't you understand it like sometimes people are aware this is going on that they really want to have and i felt like i said i felt the same thing early on it was like i eventually fairly quickly came to terms with the idea that my kids are going to have a different experience of family than i did and that's fine because they have nothing to compare it to like as long as they feel like they're you know they have a family an immediate family that loves them and then relatives care about them and it's like maybe they want to see them more often than they do because we live far away and you try to make it happen as best you can but getting bent out of shape about like the differences between your childhood and theirs you know i mean it's it just it it doesn't bother me uh almost at all even though my kids are having a very different experience of all their relatives and, and uh and holiday type experiences but i i understand where people are coming from with that and even if it's not something that you had, even if it's like something you didn't have and you always imagined that your kids would have, maybe you grew up all alone and you were an only child and you had no relatives and your holidays were only with your parents and you're still determined to make your kids have a holiday with an extended family. So you have an extended community and you just try to like, I don't know, I, I just feel like when if you're pressing, um, then that's where things come off the rails, because especially when it comes to kids and even just for other adults, um, and get back to Hobbit tendencies again. Mm-hmm. I feel like no matter what happens, as long as you can just like be content to a not have to go into work and b be with people you care about and relaxing and having fun, which means not getting stressed out if the one signature dish dish that your family makes didn't come out right, and not being super upset about, upset about who could or couldn't come, and not getting too unhinged about or or, or not taking it personally. Yeah, or, or, you know, like some relative is cranky about something in your house because it's not the way they want and just being able to like chill with that and not resurface like 20 years worth of uh, anger and resentment about your younger or older sibling or your parents or whatever. Like difficult, I guess it's difficult to, to, to deal with that type of thing. But, you know, one way to do it is to say, I know this, you see a lot of this in advice columns around this time of year where people write into an advice columnist and be like, I have this fraught relationship with, you know, my mother, or my father, or my siblings, and I'm really worried about the holidays. And every time we come, this person gets angry at that person or this person gets drunk and blah, blah, blah. And the advice columnist always says, why don't you just spend Christmas with your family at your house and just tell your parents or your brothers or whatever, we've decided that our family is going to spend Christmas by ourselves this year. And they always say it in that advice columnist way as if they just be firm, set boundaries, and it will be fine. Maybe your relatives won't ever talk to you again. <laughs> but, but at a certain point, like, you know, realistically, they don't mention that. But at a certain point, it's like, maybe that's the way for you to have. And it, because the, the bottom line is it's supposed to be an enjoyable occasion. So if you, if you have some issue with your relatives and they still want you to show up or whatever, just just have Christmas by yourself at home, right? Or even if you don't, even if you love all your relatives, but 
this Christmas, you don't want to be battling the airport and, you know, lugging luggage around and kids and fighting for overhead bin space and braving traffic in the snow to get to and from some relative's house. Maybe you just take an off year. And again, top Hobbit tendencies coming out. I would like to do that for every holiday and never see anybody and just stay in my little Hobbit hole, right? So there's that tension against like what the rest of the world expects. And I just have to sort of, uh, you know, walk that line. But for a lot of people, when I hear these horror stories, I'm like, aren't, you know, I guess you can just view holidays as another like thing that you have to do for work. It's just like a different kind of work. And I'm not yeah. saying like totally disengage from your family, but if you have any kind of dysfunction like that, where you legitimately are dreading your holidays, not in a ha ha, I'm not dreading the holidays, but in a legit way where you're dreading, because that's you know, all the people have like the, the suicide around Christmas and New Year's is so terrible. Like for oh, yeah. a lot of people, this really is a horrible time of year. And it just, it makes me sad that something, something that could and should be enjoyable has just turned so much for so many people. This is supposed to be a happy occasion. Let's yeah, not, not like let's not bicker and argue about who killed who. Right. Um, yeah, I got a lot to say about this. Um, you know, one thing is just to be clear: when I uh, was talking about holidays and vacations, this was part of it. I, I didn't mean to just make it about like the doler of Christmas. I also was just curious about you know, just as a foot uh, double dagger here, like just kind of how you feel about the whole idea of time off. You know, as against work. I want to circle back to that, but. Um, yeah, you know, uh, gosh, so much to say. An- another part of this is that I think I think one of the slightly dangerous, one of the slightly dangerous, slightly damaging um, myths, like useful myths, is like you know when you grow up, unless you're really like, well, let's let me put it this way, unless you're a lot smarter and more perceptive than I, which is entirely possible. Like, you're, we get sold a bill of goods in America, at least in the 60s and 70s. There was this whole, like, uh, taking this... I, how do you even begin to describe this? From the from the from the uh, the commercials to the TV shows to the uh, the holiday cards to the whole you know kind of notion of Santa. There's this whole like magic of Christmas idea that is so built into American culture. And now today we can be cynical about it and go, oh, that's just to sell stuff. Well, remember, Charlie Brown said the same thing in 1965. This is not a new idea. But at the same time, like, you know, it takes a while to really, really get that. I think a lot of people carry around a secret shame about feeling a little bit blue around the holidays and, and all the way down to what you're describing, like the genuine, like depressive episodes, setting aside seasonal affective disorder or like anything or like drinking and eating more than you should and not sleeping enough and all that kind of stuff. But I think there is what needs to be acknowledged is that if you really look back at even your best childhood memories, uh, like when everything went great over the holidays, there's always, there's always, always been like, it wouldn't be the holidays if it wasn't a little sad. Like, is the weird part. You know what I'm saying? Like, if it really was just like a drunken beer brawl, well, that's spring break. Like, that's not Christmas. Like, part of Christmas every year is change. It's cycles. It's realizing, oh, my gosh, it's Christmas again. Oh, it's harder for grandma to get up the steps this year. Like, a big part, I'm not, I'm not trying to be Captain Bringdown, but I'm saying, like, what I'm, what I'm learning to accept is that, that that very clear marker of having this green tree in the house every year is making me more aware of the passage of time in a way I didn't need to be when I was young. And I don't, I don't hate it because I've come to realize (laughs) I sound, now I sound like I'm in a William Faulkner novel, but 
I do think that's a big, if you don't acknowledge that that feeling of nostalgia, like, and what is nostalgia? I think that there's, I think it originally is a Greek word. It's like about a certain kind of pain about the past that we have. That's what nostalgia is, is that it's not only this yearning for the fact that there was this thing that we used to have that seems golden, but also knowing that we can't have it. If we knew we could have it again, it wouldn't be nostalgia. It would just be a wish list. So like, I guess I feel like part of the, the, the healthy path to this is realizing that that's not only is baked in as an adult today, but has always been baked in. You just didn't realize it. And you, you maybe swallowed the guilt or the bad feelings about realizing, oh, I didn't get what I wanted. Or like, I didn't get to dance with this person at the party or whatever. And now Christmas is ruined. You know, so I don't know. That, 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 that gives me some like weird, sad Nietzschean solace to like realize that the sadness and nostalgia, like it wouldn't be nostalgia if it didn't hurt a little. It's not a wheel. It's a carousel. Yeah. Um, I don't know that one. That's all right. You do. Um, <laughs> the, uh, Simpsons? The, no, no, no. Don't worry about it. Don't, don't, don't fret over it. He, he took me off my game. <laughs> no, you. It's, it's fine. So, that you're making me feel bad about the the holidays I'm producing for my. I guess you, what you're talking about for the for this being a little bit sad. You're talking about in your adult life or even in your childhood memories that you had a little bit of this tinge of like oh the passage of time. Okay, so I mean, trying to take it from the the easy to get to feelings to the more difficult to tease out feelings. Uh, there's always that feeling of like, oh, I want to get my kids something cool. Let's let's go with the really dumb stuff. I want to get my kids something really cool for Christmas, but I don't want to buy a bunch of junk just to buy junk. I want to make these memorable experiences, but I don't want to manufacture experiences. I don't want to go to a blog about Christmas and learn about new traditions I could introduce. I want to I want to like be able to honor. Uh, things about about our family without fetishizing it in a way that we would not do 364 other days a year. There's all these kind of balanced things that you don't have to think about until it's kind of upon you. So there's that. And then there's just kind of working down the line of like, in my case, you know, I'm going to be 49 next week, excuse me, this week. Uh, so yeah, I'm intensely aware more and more of like, uh, you know, I'm moving into a different demo. I'm I'm in a very different demo now. I, I don't mind it. It's it's fun to like you know make jokes about it and being old and stuff like that. It's fine if that makes you happy. But like but I can tell you that like it is it is different to get a little bit older and to see to have seen these things go by a few times and uh, you get a real different feel for it. In the same way that my kid, you know, my kids had you know eight spring times at this point, and I've had I've had forty eight. That's a that's a real different kind of thing. When you see that that cycle over that kind of time, I'm not sure I'm making sense at this point. You start it, singing "Sunrise Sunset" on the, the musical theme. <laughs> Muzzle top. I guess I guess what I'm trying to say is like the 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 things that most of us can access if we're being honest is that it's not even if you are a very self aware, mentally emotionally healthy person, it is it's not difficult to feel a little bit stressed out over the holidays for whatever reason whether other people think that's good or bad like we all have our own little personal demons about the kinds of feelings we have at a time of year that so heavily fetishizes a certain kind of golden familial perfection and i i think it would be cynical not to acknowledge that that's something a lot of people struggle with um so I guess part of what I'm saying is maybe I'm, I'm partly lobbying for the wabi-sabi Christmas and the idea that, you know, accepting that that, that sadness and, and brokenness and weirdness, you know, think about even think, think about Christmas story. And like when... Um, I, I was going to say, when you said wabi-sabi Christmas, not, this, this, not to be ping pong here, but like yeah, the, yeah. The, the, I, there's a lot of like 
favorite Christmas television uh, or movie related things that end with a Christmas that is not ideal, but that we are led to believe through the story is a good Christmas after all, because family is together and they make the best of a bad situation. So if you get there and you're having the, you know, the, the Peking duck for Christmas and they chop the head off for you, <laughs> that <laughs> even though it doesn't seem like the Christmas, the Norman Rockwell Christmas, in a way it is. It's the new style Norman Rockwell Christmas is like the house burned down, but we're all okay. And in the end, it was a good Christmas after all. And yes, it does snow in the background at the end. But you know what I mean? Like there's a lot of, a lot of uh, Christmas movies that are like that, even even the Charlie Brown Christmas or whatever, making the best of a bad situation and deciding that actually, you know, the thing, you know, the most important thing about Christmas or blah, blah, blah. Right. But that that it doesn't <laughs> the shepherds end, were abiding in the fields. <laughs> yeah, it, it doesn't end with the picture perfect Christmas. It ends with a Christmas that's all messed up, but it ends with mostly happy music and people being thankful for what it is that, that they have. Right. And so there is a there is a that is sold like that that you should make the best of it. But I feel like in real life, if Christmas doesn't go off well and people get in a big argument, very rarely does that day end with everybody sort oh. of snug- snuggling down together and realizing, you know what? The dishwasher exploded and the roof is leaking, but in the end, we had a good Christmas. Like, I'd, I haven't <laughs> seen that in real life. Well, yeah. I mean, uh, in some ways, Christmas becomes the emotional swimsuit season, like where you can really try and prepare prepare yourself for how you're going to look in the harsh beach light of uh, <laughs> familial uh, Christmas sunlight. But, you know, you really can't. It's Again, if that's not how you conduct yourself every day, it's not going to completely change just because the calendar flips any more than your New Year's resolution will stick because it's January 1st. Um, so, yeah. I have to say that you kind of made me, like I said, you kind of made me feel guilty and that when I think back to my childhood Christmases, I don't feel anything bad about them. Like, I don't know if they were perfect. I was just so self-obsessed at that point that, like, they're just golden memories in terms of, like, if other people were having problems and were stressed about stuff, I didn't care because all I cared about was, it was like, it really was magical. Like, especially the ones, the ones I have the best memories of, and again, going back to family things, where we would, on Christmas Eve, we would go over to my aunt and uncle's house in Queens and play music and sing songs together. None of our family could sing except for, like, three or four people, so this was pretty terrible but it was hilarious you know do the 12 days of christmas and have the signature dishes that each relative makes uh for the occasion and drive back home knowing that as soon as we get home in the sleepy car ride uh coming back from queens that we're going to go right into our beds and drift off to sleep because we will be legit tired from having a busy day and when we wake up in the morning it will be christmas and there will be exciting things for me um and it's all it's all good. And of course, you can't have that experience as anything close to an adult or even an adolescent. You can only have it as a very young child. Um, and at a certain point, that magic fades. And I was okay with it fading. At that point, I was like, you know, a bitter, bitter and cynical thirteen or fourteen year old <laughs> or whatever, right? Um, right? But then, like now, you turn it around and you see the world through the eyes of your child. And like, am I giving my kid any experience that even comes close to that? Should I even try? Or are they having their own magical experience that's very different than mine? Or am I just ruining it entirely and my kids will never have... I I mean, don't you think that every parent of every generation, in addition to feeling like, you know, the kids these days, feels the opposite and that they feel like their childhood was more idyllic and perfect and that they'll never be able to provide that for their kids because they don't live on a farm anymore or... 
Yeah. They didn't have a pet dog or they didn't have, they didn't kill squirrels with a pocket knife or whatever it is of their memories of children, childhood. <laughs> oh, every Christmas we go squirreling. Yeah, that doesn't fit in the modern world. And they're like, right. but they're never going to have the Christmas that I yeah, had. But, like, but, yeah, but on the one hand, we never did. I mean, we were at that point, we were still, you know, in this like, you know, what, fifth generation, you know, post Dickensian idea. And I just want to also underscore the word Dickensian. Like, <laughs> part of what makes a Christmas Carol like moving is it's Dickens, and it's got a bunch of sad people and a crippled kid in it, and it's like it, it it is really sad. But to your point, I think it is. There's the heightened feeling and the heightened awareness of being a little kid at Christmas and noticing everything. And I'm not going to go into it because I don't want to cry on a podcast. But like thinking about certain things from my childhood, you know, um, like around uh, family members dying and stuff. Uh, and like, you know, getting through that Christmas, that's fun. But, you know, the, some of the things I really remember, like I remember being at church in 1977 and coming outside after the Christmas Eve service and it was snowing. And it really did feel like something out of a TV show, which is exactly how I would have described it at the time and how I would describe it now. And but, you know, I, I have such clear recollections of what gifts I got, what years, but also just that mix. And again, I think you can't have Christmas without this mix. And herein lies the healthiness is realizing that all of that, like, if your heart only uniformly feels good about it, um, I mean, that's good. And that's a happy, healthy thing for people. But like, part, I guess what I'm trying to struggling to get at is that it's actually that combination of, of happiness and sadness, of elation and like desperation, of like uh, gains and loss. Again, sunrise, sunset, right? <laughs> Sorry. But that, I think you can't really appreciate what a holiday like this can do for you unless you're open to the fact that that is a real mixed bag. Yeah, and even if the even if the mixed bag is offset by time. So my my perfect childhood Christmases are paired with the future Christmases in which I look back on those Christmases and realize I'm never going to have one of those again. And so that Christmas is like informed by the past Christmases and becomes bittersweet in a certain way. This episode of Reconcilable Differences is brought to you in part by MailRoute. You can learn more about MailRoute right now by visiting mailroute.net slash diffs. That's D-I-F-F-S. As you know, email is so important to our daily lives. We get a ton of it. Our inboxes get full of important things, but also a lot of junk and nonsense and spam and grab ass and falderall. So to help sort this problem out, we need to have people that we can trust to do the right kind of filtering. So who do you want to sort your email? How about email nerds who do nothing but email? Yes, this is what you want, and that's what you get with the nerds at MailRoute. Imagine a world, imagine it, with no spam, no viruses, no bounced email. Imagine opening up that email inbox, and you're going to see only the legitimate email that you want and need to receive. That is what you will get with MailRoute. They've been the most reliable team in email protection since 1997. If you have your own domain, regardless of who hosts it, MailRoute can help. There's no hardware or software to install or maintain. MailRoute simply receives your mail, sorts it out, and then delivers only that beautiful, clean, pristine email to your mail server. So they're going to save you on money, hardware, bandwidth, all the other precious resources, all the great resources. It is super easy to set up. It's even trusted by large universities and corporations. Hey, even ACM, mm -hmm, the world's largest and oldest governing body for computer sciences, use mail, uses MailRoute for their email protection. That's a feather in their cap. As a desktop user, the interface is simple and effective. If you're an email admin or IT pro, a like-minded nerd, they have built all of their tools with you in mind. They even have an API for easy account management. MailRoute supports LDAP, Active Directory, TLS, mailbagging, 
outbound relay, everything you'd want from the people handling your mail. So to remove spam from your life for good, please take a minute and go to mailroute.net slash diffs, that's D-I-F-F-S, for a free trial, plus 10% off the lifetime of your account. And I checked on Wikipedia, lifetime is a very long time. So thank you very much to MailRoute for supporting Reconcilable Differences and all of Relay FM. And so, like, uh, I, uh, I'm not about to get all Buddhist about this, because uh, that wouldn't be a Christmas thing to do, but sort of like we talked about again with travel, and I, I think you and I reached something like reconciliation on this, but that idea that, like, well, I'll speak for myself, that I do better in any situation when I get my head out of my ass, and I realize that I can always choose to make, I can choose to be a better person, and I can choose to do that just because I want to make it better for other people, not just because I want to feel better about myself. Like, (laughs) you know, choosing to be selfless because it makes you feel good about yourself is not a great reason to be selfless. And so when it comes to something like the holidays, and and this now now we're getting closer to what I meant by holidays, which is when you have time off with your family is what I really meant. And so like, to me, this goes back to what we talked about with travel, which is like, if I get my head out of my ass and I say, look, let's, let's, let's repeat this phrase again until it becomes our catchphrase. Don't forget this is supposed to be fun or it doesn't have to be a nightmare. It's only it, we make it worse when we you know, toss on all of this emotional coal to make this something that that is difficult. And again, I, I can do that myself. I'm great at that. I am from Cincinnati, Ohio. I know how to make myself feel bad without any provocation. I'm super good at that. But like, again, like for me, that means getting to a point where I go, like you said, sort of like when you go to Disney World, that's not your opportunity to play, you know, uh, Cesar the dog handler and have your kids be perfect. It's your it's your chance to like pull back a notch on discipline and be mellow without being without it turning into a madhouse. So for me, that means like I'm, what I'm trying to get better at is get a better clutch about getting into a holiday faster and more completely, becoming less selfless about the time that I spend on that, on, on, on like, you know, worrying about my own nonsense and to find the right balance of keeping it on the rails and 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 being a uh, being a, a producer rather than just a consumer of fun. And like I know I I have successfully made holidays sound like work, but like I think that's good work and that's a way to be a dad in some ways is to like get your get out of your own thing and try and make it good for other people and keep it moving even if it's not going perfectly because that's part of the fun. That's the stories that you're going to remember. Yeah. I I find that thinking about how, at least how my kids experience holidays is mostly counterproductive because in the end, I really have no idea and they have no idea until they look back on it. So I'm just kind of like doing the best I can with fingers crossed. But with the adults, if there are like fraught relationships among the uh, the extended family between adults, there's only so much I can do about that. I can try to be helpful and supportive and not make things worse, but... Like at a certain point, there are certain things that just have to be endured. You know what I mean? Like the, the oh, family yeah. obligation of the certain people are going to all be together and there are certain unresolved issues amongst those people, legitimate or not. And whether or not you have a stake in them or are asked to take a side or anything like that, like there's only so much you can do to that. And that's, that's the case where it's like, are, you're not going to solve this. Just try not to make it worse. And it's difficult. Well, but here's here's another one that I, I don't know. I Genuinely, genuinely curious what you think of this, but like, if you think about it, when you're 
and I, I think we've both we've we've both talked about this, and I think we struggle with this in different ways. Is like not giving your nonsense to your kids, like not giving your kids your anxieties or however you want to phrase it. That like you want to let your kids or like like as you said so much. There's the genetics of who your kids are and how they are. Like they're going to become how they are. But again, now you've got this magnifying glass of Christmas. So what happens? Now you go, oh, I'm a parent now. I've got a kid. I would like them to have a nice Christmas. Now even if you're not like an like an an idiot who's like trying to like artificially create this entire like you know movie about Christmas for your kids you still can't help but feel I want you to have a Christmas as good as I had on my best Christmas but like I also I want to be in the business of, of creating a good experience for you but when you're doing that or I feel like when I'm doing that there is a part of me that it's not an adult there's a part of me that's like there's this past version of myself that happens to be in this body that's going like, oh man, what could I do to make an eight-year-old's kid, eight-year-old kid's Christmas really great? Which at a point is good because you're, you're open to the idea of like what, what would be fun for your family or would be memorable or enjoyable or however you think of it for your family. But that's actually only a couple steps away from being a, a child with a partially completed emotional master's degree. You're basically like an advanced child at that point, and you have to be careful because now you have the vulnerabilities of a child. And if you get disappointed by how Christmas went, you're basically a petulant middle-aged child now. And that's the tough part is where you go like, how do I make this not about me to make this whatever it's going to be for people, you know, without making it my my hang-up and my deal. That's a Christmas TV and movie special trope as well, where there's the adult. They always have, that's another very common thing, they have the adult who's pressing who's pressing to have to make the perfect holiday for his family. And there's always a scene where the pressing comes to a head and one of the little kids being the wise adult in the movie, even though it's really little kids, says, Dad, you know, I don't care about whatever it is that you're currently upset about. I would just like you not to be. Like, what is your story with the uh, the Christmas where you got the really good Buzz Lightyear? You've told that story before. Do you remember what I'm talking about? Yes. Like, what, what, is that what you're trying to do? That was and such a good Christmas, and all she remembers is me cursing. It was such a good Christmas. She got the best presents. Like, we really nailed it. Like, really, really good presents, but, like, the tree was great. Everything went great. But, like, what she remembers of that is me trying to get Buzz and Woody out of the wires that held them into the package. And that's I think that's the first time that she remembers me actively cursing. Yeah, because like what you think you're coming away with the Christmas, this is the Christmas where you got all the great things and everything was perfect. And all <laughs> she remembers Buzz that, Lightyear. <laughs> that's the Christmas when daddy got really mad. Yeah, and I, I mean, I was it was frustrating. And, and 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 you were pressing at that point. It's like it's like I want this to be perfect, and everything yeah. would be perfect if only the stamp toy would come out of the box. And like you know, they use screws now too, like actual screws. No, literal screws. And like I I, I wish I had taken a photo of it, John, because I know I if know you could appreciate, it. like what it took to get somebody. Oh God. You know, the, like the wire wrapping guns they use, like the ones that do the twisting. Obviously, that's not a human doing that. It's a machine that takes those things, twists them. Like, there's the screws and there's the wires, and they're twisted eight thousand times around. And you got to get out the wire cutters if you don't want to untwist those for an hour. And a half. This reached a nadir in her birthday last month, where a friend of hers gave her one of those, uh, one of those, uh, one of those creepy, skinny, like ghost teenage dolls, like the creepy yeah. high school girls uh, dolls. Is it Monster High? Monster High. Great. Now we've got that in the house. Like, uh, like this, this, if this doll were scale size, she would be five, eight and like 90 pounds, maybe. It's like the, the nightmare before Christmas proportions, big pumpkin head. And I, I, I get how they want it to look good on the shelf, 
but there were so many wires and mm-hmm. rubber bands. Mm-hmm. There were no screws in this case. Thank God, that'd be a little too on the nose. But like, it, it took me like 20 minutes to remove this gift I didn't even want her to have. It was heartbreaking. I'm very familiar with those dolls and the packaging. Does, does, your, your, does your girl like this? That's another thing I think about in terms of holidays and, and <laughs> Ta- the issue of taste. <laughs> gift guying specifically. No, volume of toys. Oh, God, yes. I, when I look back on my childhood, I always feel like, and I think this is actually legitimately true, that both my parents had better jobs than, than we do. That basically, like, you know, I'll hear all the, you hear all the BS about, oh, this is the first generation, you know, generation X, the first generation did not do as well as their parents. Not that my parents were super rich, but in the grand scheme of things, they had better jobs than we have just because there were better jobs back then like in terms of like they started off at lower pay but they ramped up and they had one job their entire careers and they spent their entire careers working for the government and got ridiculous pensions that don't even freaking exist anywhere like their pensions are crazy health care pensions like it right. just seemed it just non-existent right so by the time we kids were getting to the age to remember anything their pay was pretty good their benefits were pretty good. Their job security was really good. And it just feels like they had more than we have, at least in terms of security. And yet, we got way fewer things. We had fewer toys. We had less expensive toys. Anytime oh, I wanted God. an expensive toy, it was a big deal. And I would often have to contribute and, you know, put money towards these things. And it was like, and then I look at how much stuff my kids have. And I'm like, I don't even think, adjusted for inflation, maybe... Maybe I make, I don't know. Do I make as much as my parents used to? I've never done the math on whatever. But it just seems like our kids have way more stuff. And yeah. that's just like choosing. I mean, are we spoiling our kids? It was, you know, the whole puritanical thing of like, you should, you'll have a rock and you'll like it and that's your toy and you get one doll and if you break it, that's it. And, you know, and the whole idea of like always wanting to give your children a better childhood than you had that just keeps scaling up and up and up. But again, you, 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 when you do that or when I do that, I'm giving, I mean, I'm kind of giving a, a, a gift to my kid who wants it, but I'm really giving a gift to little me. When I'm, when I'm doing that, I am like removing any chance that you will ever have any feeling of privation, little Merlin. Like you, if you yeah. want this, yeah. you will have it. It's not about going like, oh, do we really need more calico critters in the house? Or beds for calico critters. We have so many beds for calico critters. And uh, I have a calico critter IKEA here. You have no idea what the calico critters. Yeah, but no, it's yeah. You're right. I mean, with a son and a daughter, like I feel like my wife. My wife. I'm going to blame her if she listens to this. Is 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 more prone to buy stuff for the kids. And so that's me. That's me in our house. And so she's buying like things that either she had as a child. Or would have loved to have had as a child. Sometimes she's kind of buying them for herself. I believe she yeah. actually has some American Girl dolls that are actually hers. Not that I'm saying, not that there's anything wrong with that, as they say. It's fine. <laughs> but here's where it becomes a problem. And I do the same thing, you know, buying my kid a big Lego Star Destroyer, right? Because they're really cool, right? Here's where it becomes a problem. It's fine. I don't think you're like ruining your children by spoiling them. But at a certain point, volume becomes an issue in terms of actual volume, length, width, and height. Oh yeah, like square, square, or like cu- cu- cubic, cubic inches of stuff. Right. Yeah, but also cubic inches of expectation. Right, and yeah, that's that adds up to kids who treat toys and belongings as disposable because there's a seemingly unlimited supply. You've removed scarcity, and so they don't give a damn about anything. The way I treasured like the one expensive, you know, or interesting toy that I had, the way I like obsessed over my particular like little robot or Star Wars toy or something. 
they don't have that because they're like, I got a million of these. And if this oh, one, if man. I don't care about this one, another one will just arrive in the house. I can't even... I can't even keep track of where all these things I own are. I don't even know everything that I own. So how can I care about, you know, so then you get disappointed that your children aren't treasuring their belongings the way that you did. It's because they have a million of them. But they are not to blame. When we say we're spoiling our kids, what we're, we should really say is like we're spoiling ourselves or ourselves are <laughs> spoiling. Yeah, no, it's, to- it's totally it's totally on us. Yeah. No, I mean, there's this, I call it the SFM uh, phenomenon. <laughs> you get screens, food, and merchandise. We're like, whatever we do... There will be like a uh, an inexplicable gravity, I don't know what you want to call it, an attraction toward a screen or a food or some merchandise. And like there's the whole experience idea. Like I don't know whose kid like really loves just an experience. Maybe if you're like a sweet French boy with a funny hat, like you really like the idea of, oh, mama, it was so sweet of you to drive me by the graveyard. It is beautiful. But if you take your kid somewhere, they're going to want a hat or a shirt or a doll or a keychain. I, th- I think the, I think the experience thing is not that the kid's gonna like it, is that that's the thing that's actually gonna stick. And I I, I buy into that. But oh, it's experiences, true. Experiences are harder to pull off, especially since during if you have kids like mine, during most of the quote unquote experiences, they will be complaining like it is the worst thing you've ever done to them. Oh no, it's 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 absolutely true. And of those, I mean, like I don't know if you take that, you know, screens, foods, and merchandise. Insert your own whatever it is your kid you you've led your kid to be into, but like you you will never be able to put the idea of an ex- rarely be able to put the idea of an experience on a hook, and like you know let some line out and have your kid run after that. With the exception of John Roderick arriving with the uh, with the Jam CRV, my daughter is extremely excited about that. But that is very very unusual, and I have no one to blame but myself. You can see the link I just added to the notes. Two words, Dudley Dursley. I don't follow enough Harry Potter to know what you're referring to. Uh, well, especially, you know, Dudley is the son of the Dursleys. It's Harry's, you know, Harry's, Harry's adoptive brother. And uh, the, the show or the movie, the first movie starts and the book kind of starts with, you know, before he get, even gets invited to Hogwarts, it's Dudley's birthday. And <laughs> uh, Dudley has gotten, what was it? He got... He got 36 presents, and he's mad because he got 37 oh, yeah. last year. Yep. And then Vernon swears he's, he's got two more coming, like it's going to be okay. And like, there's something about that scene where I don't want that to make my heart clench up the way it does, but it does, where I go like, ah, that's not, that's not who my kid is, but that's, I don't want to be that. Yeah, I, don't I, be that. I think most of us are, are going to be able to head that off before it gets to that stage. But like the first manifestation is what I just described before, of where you you see that they're valuing this stuff less. Like that, that you build up a tolerance. And here, but here's here's the pattern. And this is I, I don't mean this. It's not about her. It's about me. I've made this this way. But uh, it's the acquisition rather than the having, rather than the collecting. Oh rather, yeah, no. Once you got it, it's it's boring. Yeah, yeah like ju- it's just another fuzzy thing in a pile. But uh, anyway, so that's, yeah, that's all in us. So it's another thing we're doing poorly. I used to be, I was talking to my daughter about this today. We, uh, we are in the middle right now of what we call Jubilee Week. I, I, we, uh, sometimes I introduce the, I, I have introduced to my daughter the idea of the Jubilee, which is like basically the same thing as a vacation. I was like, Jubilee Week is starting. Like we get all these days off and we got stuff and like, yeah, let's have some levity. Like we're going to go and we're going to, you know, go stay in a hotel and have turkey and it's going to be really fun. Do you and, have the, uh, the feats of strength or no? <laughs> The airing of grievances? What is it? It has a high, uh, the, the steel has a high height to weight ratio or something. <laughs> high tensile strength. Jubilee week. Staying in a hotel, eating turkey. It's exciting. But I was telling her today that, uh, and I've, I've joked about this, I think here and definitely on Back to Work, I used to be the worst at getting into vacations. 
I think I told the story about, you know, being in Massachusetts and like trying to get a Wi-Fi signal. You, you know the story, right? About how I actually went into, uh, went into a vacation house that someone was not currently in and restarted their Linksys router. Yeah, I, yeah. yeah. So that's all true. I think we all have stories about uh, vacation Wi-Fi. Yeah, but like it but, used to be, I went through this period and I was trying to explain to her because, you know, she doesn't care. But I was trying to say like, you know, I used to write uh, and I used to post to the internet. <laughs> and she says, put this on Tumblr. That's her word for put it on, put it on <laughs> Wi-Fi. That's her word. Put this on Wi-Fi. Mm-hmm. I, I, you know, I used to write things and put it on Wi-Fi uh, every day, sometimes a couple times a day. So I was like, you know, my old job I used to have, I, it was kind of stressful because I was always working on something. And uh, I was just trying to explain to her, in my mind, like why it was really hard for me to get into vacations to where by 2006, it felt like it would take me the number of days we were on vacation minus one and a half to get me into the vacation. Do you know what I mean? I I have found it in the past very hard to unhook and to get to where I can just go, hey, this is the thing we're doing now. Like, So you'd be like in work mode until one and a half days? But you know, that's the funny part. It was kind of work mode, but like in the early days of Wi-Fi, in the, well, you know, at least my early days of Wi-Fi or of, you know, mobile phones and wireless connectivity, that was in some ways the worst of worlds. Like having a trio and a sprint connection was kind of the worst because it was just enough to let you know there was probably something out there to worry about that you couldn't do much about. And so I'd bring all this equipment along and I'd do all this. But like, you know, the funny thing is I've actually gotten better at it. And I think doing podcasts has been really helpful for that. Now to have more stuff that I can only do in one place has helped a lot. I guess what I'm saying is like, it, I part of the stress of the holidays for me used to be how hard it was to completely separate from what I'm doing at a given time. Why do I say that? Because I think that's really important. Like you'll never completely separate from that, but like you have to like pass through some area, some decontamination zone to get to where you're now officially in Jubilee mode. Like now it is, it is time for our holiday season, whatever that is, even if that's for Labor Day. But like getting a clutch for getting into that gear faster, I think is a very healthy habit. And so yeah. part of my question was, are you, are you good at that? I think I, well, I have two minds about that. And on the one hand, I'm really good at it. I forget my, I can forget my job exists within like moments of like leaving the office. (laughs) Like, and you can know, like my, my old measure was like the judge of a good vacation is if I come back and can't remember any of my passwords, don't know what the hell I was working on. Like, again, like you barely remember, do I have a job? Where do I work? I can disassociate (laughs) pretty darn well. Cause it's like, it's almost as if work an obligation is like a dream and vacation is like when you wake up and you forget the dream, you know, like the dream is so fresh in your mind, but then like by the time you've actually got both your feet on the ground off of the bed, the dream is fading. You're like, what was that? I was feeling something in that dream and it was really important. What the hell happened? Oh, whatever. Never mind. And it just disappears. And like my real life is when I don't have to work. Right. And to some degree, that illusion is afforded by the fact that somewhere I know that I do have a job and so I'm not spending the entire vacation worrying about how I'm going to buy food the next week because I know like, that I'm essentially getting paid to do nothing. It's a vacation, right? Right, right. I'm still getting paid, but I'm not at work. And so it's the magic of vacation. On the other hand, because I'm a programmer and because I'm sometimes actually interested in what I'm doing, my brain is kind of working on programming problems large and small in the background, whether I... Would you call it a background process, John? It's, it's a bad model, but like the, the subconscious, you know that? You ever hear that? You're like, you're running screen. 
Not really. I don't like Serena or Tmux, by the way. But uh, uh, but like I remember uh, the first time I heard that was when I was like 12 or 13. It was some kind of like subconscious mind BS thing that again. Like, yeah, like take, if you if you want to remember something like, you know, think about it before you go to sleep. If you want to dream about this, like do this before you go right, to bed. And like right. your, your, your quote unquote subconscious mind mm-hmm. will come up with the answer. Which I think has been kind of disproven. Right. But but here's the thing about all that crap. If you stop thinking about it as an explanation of the real world and start thinking about it as sort of like a self-hack or like, a, you know, a suggestion or a model or any of those things combined. I remember doing, Do you, I don't know what these puzzles are called. I can look it up for the show notes maybe. But the ones where it's like... Um, it's got the word, the letters A-L-L, kind of big... And then to the right of it, it's got the word uh, world with a smaller text size. And you're supposed to figure out what common, uh, you know, word or phrase is this picture describing. Hmm. You're picturing that? And that one, that one would be, yeah. it, it's a small world after all. Because uh, oh, small. I see. But it's like right. almost like a rebus. So like it's visual. Yeah, whatever. I don't know yeah. what the name of it is. But anyway, there's a million of those things. And they're fun. And we used to have like, you know, little ditto sheets and printouts of them from school or whatever. Um, and the best thing about those is like, we would have, you know, we just do these sheets. I remember doing it on vacation. We'd have these sheets and we'd all gather around the family and everyone would feel clever when they figured one out. And, you know, uh, sometimes it was hard to tell because the printouts were bad or whatever. Like someone was trying to chip off the old block and had a block and like, you know, calligraphy letters, but the chip was like, is that an error in printing? Oh, it's supposed <laughs> to be a chip, chip off the old block. Anyway, sometimes you get stuck on one. Uh, and there's two ways you can go when you get stuck on one of those. One is you can try to convince yourself that it is a phrase you've never heard of, which every once in a while is true and that pisses you off. It's like, I know way I would have gotten that because I have no idea. I've never heard the phrase in his cups before. I never would have gotten it, right? So it's like you felt like you wasted your time trying to figure something out. But sometimes there'll be someone there who knows the answer who will assure you this is a phrase that you know. Like, it's a small world after all. You've been on the ride. You've heard the song. I know yeah, but, you know but, but this. But fixating on it is not making it better. Right. And so you think about it, and it's a fun kind of relaxing thing, but the subconscious BS thing was just go to sleep. And when you wake up in the morning, the answer will be in your mind, which is mostly total BS. But the power of that suggestion, combined with the fact that your brain does crap when you're asleep, I'm totally convinced that your brain does stuff when you're asleep. Yeah. Very, very frequently... I have had that exact experience with these particular puzzles. I will, I would, you know, again, I'm 12 or 13. I would try to work it out all day. Couldn't figure it out. I would try to convince myself that it's a phrase I don't know, would be told otherwise. And I would, I would believe to myself that like, I'm going to do that thing that they said in whatever that, you know, bogus, you know, life springs program that, <laughs> that, uh, that, uh, was on television. I'm going to go to sleep and I would <laughs> oh, wake, right, 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 right. And I would wake up in the morning. And the Your vocabulary would, is increasing. <laughs> and the answer would be in my head. Yes. Not like after a second, I would yeah. wake up, my eyes would come open, and it would like, boom, know it. And that's like the magic of like BSing your own mind uh, about things. I don't know how we got on this topic. I, but, like, I think, no, no, I think that's real. I'm like, and the thing is, I don't need a scientific explanation for that. I mean, I heard something similar a long time ago, and I wouldn't accept, uh, I wouldn't like suggest this to you, except it works, which is this, like when you're trying to remember something, uh, first of all, I don't know, I can't explain the physiological process. You stress out a little bit, you tighten up, and you hunker down. You try to really, really, really remember. You go, oh, come on, it's that, oh, with the thing and the... And what I learned a long time ago is if you really want to remember something, you say the following thing to myself. I'm going to stop thinking about this, and not long after I stop thinking about it, 
I'll remember what it is. I don't know why, but I will. And you know what? It almost, it worked literally last night. My wife and I were watching TV and she's like, oh, you know, Rick from The Walking Dead, you know, he's married to the daughter of the singer from Jethro Tull. And I was like, really? Huh, that's interesting. And she goes, yeah, what's his name? Is it Ian Hunter? And I was like, oh, Jethro Tull, it's Ian. And then I said, it'll come to me. And I stopped. And two minutes later, I turned to her and I said, Ian Anderson. And here's my explanation for that, which is non-scientific, which is that it's not so much that there's magic happening in your mind. It's that you've agreed to stop slathering stress onto yourself. (laughs) And it allows your mind to work as it wants to work without you adding all these layers of self-talk about what you should be thinking. Yeah. And I think what it comes down to is you can come up with anything. This is why people come up with things like, I'll remember this after I sacrifice a goat. Like at a certain point that starts working, like anything, anything you make up. It's a a mnemonic. It could work. Yeah. Right. Anything you make up will work. That's the beauty of it. And you don't have to like believe in it and kind of. Yeah, but you're you're hanging, you're hanging a lantern on it, right? Right. You're just, all you're trying to do is come up with a model or a pattern or a set of steps that leads you to success in this way. And it really almost doesn't matter what you do. Now you can, what it does matter is that like, you say, what if what I do is I get really tense? Right. And I and I just like think really hard about like because you don't believe that that would be useful because you have the idea that like if I just relax and chill, whether that's true or not, because you because that story makes sense to you, that's why it works for you. If you believe the opposite, if you believe relaxing will make you forget things and you have to concentrate, then that will work for you. So it doesn't even matter what you think about. Like, for example, one of my memory things that I went through and again, probably heard it somewhere or whatever. Because it made sense to me mentally, that's why it works. And it's uh, if you can't remember something, just go through the alphabet. Just go through, does it begin with A and try and just try to like sound out words that begin with A in your head and then go, no, go to B, try to right. sound out where, and you don't know what word you're thinking of. How am I, I supposed I, to do I that? don't know why those things work, but I know they work. Right. And so, and, and the only reason that works for me is because that system, when I heard it from wherever I heard it, it made sense to me. Like, oh, that kind of makes sense. Let me try it. If it didn't make sense to me, it wouldn't work. You know uh, what I mean? So someday, someday let's talk about my incredibly Byzantine method, methodology for remembering dreams. Because I, I don't talk about it a lot. I don't talk about it a lot because it's boring, but I'm very interested in dreams. No one wants to hear them, but I have a, a very interesting, complex methodology for doing this that involves a lot of this weird rigmarole and ritual, and it actually seems to work. Why do you, aside from that, why do you want to remember dreams? Forget about the methodology. Why is this even a goal? Um, I mean, just on the face of it, because I like stories. And I especially like stories that I Your dreams are stories? Oh, Jesus Christ, John. You would not believe what I went through last night. You have sophisticated dreams. Mine are more free association. Oh, you're kidding. You cannot believe what I went through last night. It was it was unbelievable. Well, I wonder if you're synthesizing the the stories a- after the fact. It's like a retconning the the garbage in your dreams into a coherent story. Well, that's the, part of the, the system. That's <laughs> that's part of the system. I don't want to get into it. We don't have time. We need to wrap this up soon. But like, I, I I can tell you that part of it is trying. You can't try too hard. You got to loosen your grip. And I, I won't get into it right now, but like it does involve like a lot of letting go. And like, right. I don't know what there's, there's probably somebody who, like, like there are probably neurologists that could give us a very plausible explanation for why this is. Mm-hmm. I mean, in, in lay person's terms, it's like when you stop stressing about something and let your brain just do what it's good at, it will occur to you. And whatever MacGuffin it takes to do that, like do it. I, I think the belief that if you just stop stressing and let your brain do what you do, that is the MacGuffin because you believe that. That's why it works for you. You're giving me a meta model. It's just like because that theory makes sense to you, because the idea that 
Stressing about it is stopping it if you just somehow let your oh, brain do it. Oh, you took do. it and you turned it. This is your week to be, it's your week to be mean to me. And I get no, it. No, 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 no. I do exactly the same thing because the alphabet thing makes sense to me. Right. According to my, that's why it works for me. So like, it's not, you know what I mean? It's not as if what you said is, I really believe that if you just let your brain do it, 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 it will do, it will get the answer. Therefore, I use this technique to let my brain, it's the opposite. It's like, it's because that theory makes sense to you that it works, which is fine. Like, it doesn't really matter. All you care about is the results, ah, right? You're right. It's a lot like faith or evolution. Well, I see your quite. point. Not quite. Yeah. Anyway, I, I love those uh, the games like that, especially especially as they as they relate to game actual games like the, is that what they're called the Rebus things. Um, I like it in the context of a game because there are no stakes in that situation. It, well, but there's also there's also modality. There's also I don't know if that's exactly the right word, but there's like I do believe that there are different modes of thinking. Again, another model. Thank you. Uh, but I think there are ways of of like I don't know if it's left or right brain or however you want to think about it, whatever your model is. But like it's funny how once you get into a certain uh, I guess what John Cleese would call an open way of thinking. Um, when you're in a more open and open and generative mode of thinking, uh, if you can stick with it and like work that muscle, like pff, nothing seems impossible. It's just difficult to get into and it's difficult to stay there. But like, you know, you go like, Hey, you know what? I don't care how it works. I'll piss on a spark plug. Like I can make this work. So, um, yeah, this is this is interesting um, in a meta meta model model way. Like this is another one of those things where it's this is not how I expected you to be about these things. You seem uh, oddly sanguine about holidays and vacation. Like when you talked about like, yeah, you can't you know worry about the money when you're not on vacation, and then when you're on vacation, don't worry so much about the money. Like that that strikes me as like an insight I did not have about you before. Or in this case, like, yeah, oh, you know, it's a vacation, it's a holiday, it's it's this thing. You seem like weirdly relaxed about that. Well, my perception of how holidays go is probably very different than how they actually go and the experience of other people. And I do have a little bit of uh of stress and concern about that. But I mean, I'm I guess most charitably you could call my experience of, of holiday and family things as blissfully ignorant. That's like best case, <laughs> right? And I guess that's, right. I mean, that's good-ish for me, um, maybe bad for everybody else. And I do think about it a little bit. Like there's, there's a certain baseline level of neuroses that is always present. I hope you've gathered that by now. Hmm. Um, that is just an intrinsic part of me. But in general, like I said, with the unhooking, other than, that's how we got into this whole thing, other than... Uh, processing programming problems in my head whether i can help it or not and he's like oh you're not really unhooking from work i don't really count that i'm actually really good about unhooking i'm really good at doing nothing um i've always said as they say youth is wasted on the young and uh money is wasted on the rich or whatever like i feel like the pe people who are like oh boy if i didn't have a job i would be bored out of my mind maybe i'm fooling myself because there is some baseline i think you'd be great at it you'd be so great at it like i, I really do i really do i feel like it would be no i can tell nothing. i can tell but not because i would literally do nothing but because i have an unlimited number of stimulating hobbies and interests to keep me busy well, it's, forever. it's like it's like almost like you get to take i don't know what year what 13 14 year old you like you had all the interests and all these different disparate things where like there was a limited amount of resources for the time to spend the money to spend the like you know information you could glean in the time yeah, no, available i could bring all that back you could bring that back and you've got the resources now you don't need all the resources but with whatever resources you had you could put them to good use yeah. you would not be sitting around going like do i want to watch prices right Right. No, like it would be like any, I would still have the same problem. Like with, even with unlimited resources, I'd be like, look, I only have a certain number of years on this planet. 
if I'm going to build the volcano lair, something else is going to have to be sacrificed. And I'll be doing the same calculus <laughs> about like what is and isn't on the table. And, I, and again, not that I'm saying, you know, money buys happiness and all those other silly things and there's tons of other obligations that come with it. But 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 yeah, like I, I, I feel like that is one of my strengths that I'm that I don't. Uh, one of my strengths is that I'm super lazy and don't want to do anything. You know, like that I'm not one of those people who says I could never handle not having responsibilities in a job or whatever or an, or power over other people or anything like that. I just I can handle it fine. And and the, yeah. the, the, the thing is, I can't do nothing because as most. But you wouldn't. Are, that's, a, that's, right, that's, that's the problem. Because like, 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 people think like, oh, you would go crazy if you didn't have a job or whatever. It's like I would do things that are just as much like a job to other people but they'd be the things that i want to do so like my brain would eat itself we didn't get to, we'll talk about this when we talk about jobs my brain would absolutely eat itself if not given stimulation but there would be pl- i i can provide that i don't need a job to provide that i can provide right. it myself and I, I think i think of our friend john rodder who has to come up in every episode of the show kind of like superman in the background of seinfeld yeah. um who is essentially indulging he's re- he's retired in place it, it re- indulging those weird hobbies whether it be sunglasses or belt buckles or or dolls of american presidents or rvs <laughs> or what have you like that he has an unlimited number of those he's never going to run out of those it's not like he's going to be like well i've got all the sunglasses i can't do an impression well and like having and having and, and either taking either taking a job that took a lot of his time or having unlimited time and resources uh, neither one of those would necessarily be a guarantee of happiness one way or another or a guarantee of sadness. Like, that's the thing. Like, for me, it isn't like I would go, oh, I just don't know what I'd do with my time. Well, I would find something to do with my time, but I'm also open to the idea that, like, I might find another thing to do with my time that's not what I expected, and I'm also open to the idea that, like, if I did have that, uh, if I did hate it, like, I, I don't think I would necessarily have a heart attack on the 90th, 90th day. I would find something else to be interested in. I mean, like that's then that way I am very open to the idea of if somebody wants to give me unlimited money and time, I promise I will eventually find a good way to use it. You can't get unlimited time, unfortunately, but unlimited money. Are you sure about that? Yeah, I'm pretty sure. Um, although that's that's an obvious fantasy of all like the things with the the time time travel movies where you could where you could freeze the rest of the world. But isn't that where the entrepreneurs end up? Like they all seem to like they, they start out and they're just just horrible human beings and, and entrepreneurs. And then they, they name a charity after themselves and their wife. And then they eventually want to figure out how to stop aging. That seems like the yeah, third stage but, of entrepreneurship. But, but they they uh, yeah, everyone comes up with that way too late. Um, if they're not already on the cusp of figuring out how to slow down aging when you're a baby, it's probably not looking oh, good for you. Oh, yeah. So we got the di- the diagrams and the patents are in place, but no way is that going to be implemented in a way at a time you'd want to preserve your body for 700 years. Yeah, yeah. You don't you don't get unlimited time, but the, but yeah, it's one of the things that I fantasize about. It. Like, just pick any thing that you could sink a lot of time into, like house stuff, like having just done a renovation or whatever. It's like yeah. If I had unlimited money, surely one of my projects would be designing the house that I want to live in and where it's supposed to be. That project Ugh. is like a five-year project easy, assuming you even got it close on the Imagine having a giant budget for something that's that much of a mess, though. Like, but no, but that's the thing. You have nothing else to do with your day. Like, And obviously, yeah, it's not true that because you've got, you got just... kids, but like, you just... 
you just spend years in the planning oh, and finding the site and what you want to do. More granite to worry about, John. More granite. No, but like, yeah, but but this type of, the type of thing where you don't have to worry about how well it goes because you got you know that 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 task alone could absorb like half of your remaining. Life. I just want I want a Twilight Zone episode and sixty years of you in it. I, I think that would be fascinating. <laughs> But look at a shielder. Look at a shielder. You know, do you really want to be around long enough that you can't remember what happened in your life? What was the time enough for whatever where his glasses break? And he can't time enough. Books? Time enough at last. Yeah. Yeah. Like I feel like he could fashion something, some way to read. Like that's not. You think you think the penguin gave up too easy? I don't remember the penguin in that episode. Oh, it's Burgess Meredith from uh, TV's Batman. Oh no, that's what you're going at. Yeah, yeah. No, no I. I think they want the ending to be crushing, but it's not because bottom line, no matter how bad your eyesight is, if you yeah. really have unlimited time, you yeah. can fashion some new device to read books. And you got time off. You'll figure you, that out. You got large print. I mean, come on. Oh, yeah, it's true. It's a great time to be alive. Or the penguin. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs>